Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating whether or not Jesus existed and we are starting right now with Dr. Boyce's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us. Dr. Stephen Boyce, the floor is all yours. Thank you, James. It's good to be here. Good to have an opportunity to engage this discussion with Dr. Carrier, who I have great respect for and have had previous conversations. Look forward to this discussion. Hopefully we'll give the audience something to uh, remember. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. It's all right. Again, I, I appreciate Dr. Carrier and his work and his study, and I'm looking forward to this discussion debate with him. Uh, to find common ground with Dr. Carrier, I decided to go a direction where we could agree for the most part on material. So I want to start with Paul's experience particularly in his life when we're dealing with the subject of the historicity of Jesus. Uh, to mention, we think sometimes that he was around in 50 and 60, although that's when he probably wrote many of his epistles, but he was there not far after Jesus's death as a part of a council known as the Sanhedrin, when a man by the name of Stephen was protesting them and, and accusing them of murdering the Messiah, it says that they laid their coats at a young man by the name of Saul, and he was there. He was alive during those events. He was a student under Gamaliel. Not long after that, he was sent out and commissioned to imprison and even put to death Christians on the basis, not about whether Jesus had died or that he was buried, but rather on the basis that his claim, their claims, these Christians were claiming the man they put to death resurrected from the dead, and he detested that and put people in prison for that. Later after his conversion, whether you believe it was a hallucination, a vision, or the real Jesus, that's not the point of this debate. Regardless of that conversion from a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin to a Christian, he continued to recognize in 1 Corinthians that Jesus died uh, and that his physical body was actually buried. He used those terms. And he only not, and not only recognized that, he recognized the form of death that he died. It was a Roman crucifixion. And it's weird that he would later in Galatians 2 choose to identify with that kind of a death, which was an embarrassment and a shame, but yet he was not ashamed of the gospel, as he said. And he believed that the Jews, if they continued to believe in works to justify them rather than true salvation in Christ, then actually... Jesus's death, he says, is needless or it was in vain. So he not only believed that Jesus was a person before his conversion, after his conversion, he even went so far after his conversion to debate the fact that Jesus was the promised descendant given to Abraham. And he made sure to identify the singular promise descendant to him. He used the word seed, the descendancy, not seeds, plural, that is Christ, he said. So he recognized later in chapter four that through that promise to Abraham, 
a descendant was born through, and he used the word of a woman, a Jew under the law of Moses. So he put himself in a position to be a Jew as a person under the law, born of a woman. Paul believed that about the physical Jesus. Now, his position about Jesus really shifted more due to the resurrection than actually his death. They all agreed on his death. So premise number one is this. When we're looking at Paul's experiences, Paul, the Pharisee, before his conversion, believed in a man who claimed to be a Messiah, but that he was an imposter. He was put to death by his council, the Sanhedrin, for the sin of heresy, which is exactly what Moses commanded them to do. They believed they were following the law of Moses by putting him to death. Now, Paul, the apostle, after his conversion, believed a man believed the man was actually the true Messiah, and the greatest evidence that convinced him of that at first was a resurrection, a dead body coming to life. His position as a Pharisee, he believed in a man named Jesus. He was put to death. His position as a Christian, he believed in a man named Jesus put to death. The difference was the resurrection experience he had. Then later on, he met with the eyewitnesses, particularly he mentioned in Galatians 1, Cephas, who is the Aramaic name for Peter. And he mentions that in his process of going and visiting with him for 15 days, he saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord, Tan Adelphon to Koryu in Greek. And one of the things that's unique about this perspective is that there's much debate about what does Adelphos or Adelphon mean? And sometimes people say it's a physical relative or it's a Jewish brotherhood or a Christian brotherhood or a companionship or a family as a whole. And the answer is true to all the above. So how do we identify terms like this to know the specifics? Is he talking about a family relation? Well, what needs to be called into mind here is the description. Why did Paul use James's name with a description? And to help us with that, why did he call Peter Cephas and then later call him by his Greek name, Peter? Here's the answer. These are names given when looking at groups. This was a way of writing in this time where there was multiple names that were the same. For example, Cephas would have been identified because that's the name that Jesus gave him in his earthly ministry, setting him aside. Think about it. Jesus had multiple disciples with the same name. Simon is the most popular name in Palestine in that era. He gave him the name Petra or Peter and Cephas, the Aramaic version. And in doing so, he was distinguishing Cephas. And if you don't believe me, just follow Paul's writing here. Paul, when he talks about Peter in a group, always refers to him as Cephas. He does it in Galatians 1, Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 9, and 1 Corinthians 15. And then when he talks about him as an individual away from a group, he calls them by his Greek name, Peter, like he does in Galatians 2. And then he turns right back around and calls him Cephas when he's talked about with a group. It was a way of identifying clarity in writing to a specific person of interest. This was a way of clarifying in a regular basis to distinguish. He did the same thing for James. Now keep this in mind. He distinguished which James he spent time with as opposed to the rest of the apostles. Remember, Paul made a declaration. I tell you the truth. He says, and I do not lie to you. I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. Now, if he just said James there, that would have been very confusing. Why? The apostles, in addition to this James, had two others, James, the brother of John, and James, what they called the less or potentially the younger, or he was shorter, one or the other. There were multiple Jameses, so he had to bring clarification. Once he clarifies him here, he continues just calling him James the rest of the time. There had to be distinguishing of which James it is. And, and to just have this 
James without a name or to keep it general would have confused the audience about who he's talking to because they're like, well, did he meet with James, the brother of John during that time? Cause he was still alive. Was it James the less, which James he clarified. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 12. The writer does the same thing there. He mentions two Jameses in one chapter, James, the brother of John, same phrase in Greek was put to death by Herod. And why did he do that? Because he mentions James from Jerusalem the, the Bishop of Jerusalem in the same chapter later coming down. So he, if he just said James was killed by Herod, they would have been reading that go, which James got killed by Herod. He clarified by association, James, let's talk about the name is it's the most, it's the 11 most common name out of a hundred that we've done data on in the Palestine er, Palestinian area. When you're examining these documents, the gospels and acts, Josephus, the Judean desert texts and the tombs, from 330 BC to 200 CE, as demonstrated by Dr. Richard Bauckham, and even higher numbers given by Dr. Ilum, who wrote the lexicon of Jewish names of late antiquity. Therefore, when writing during this time, names must follow descriptions, locations, family relations. For example, Jesus or Joshua is the sixth most popular name in that time and era of Palestine. And anytime Jesus is represented, it's Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus to identify him clearly. They did the same thing in Jesus's disciples. You had Jude and Judas. So you had Judas Iscariot to separate him from the other Judas. And even the writers would make sure to identify him as the one who betrayed the Lord. You did the same thing with James, James, the brother of John or the son of Zebedee and James the less. It's a way of distinguishing. If Paul was only referring to James as the brother in a sense of Adelphos was just a Christian community, he left the potential of identification more ambiguous because now you don't know which apostle James he met with, and it opens the audience to be more Jameses since it is the 11th most common name in Palestine. That leaves a a broader audience. It doesn't clarify at all. In fact, it leaves it more ambiguous. Now, this is consistent, not just in the New Testament writings. Josephus did the same thing. And I want to make sure I focus on uh, book 20, chapter 9. This section is undisputed because he uses the same phrase about James, the brother of Jesus, when he calls him Ton Adelphon Iesu, uh, the brother of Jesus, James. To clarify this James, he not only clarifies James and Jesus, but also Jesus, I should say, because why is that? Because at this time, if you had households in Palestine, Jesus, the sixth most popular name, James, the 11th, guess what? A lot of families probably had brothers in the homes with those two names. So he adds an additional clarification known as or who was called the Christos, the Messiah. Now it's abundantly clear which James, which Jesus he's talking about. Gnostic writers did the same thing in attempts to identify and to convince their audience that they're legitimate eyewitness people. For example, in the Gospel of Thomas, he wants you to know he's Didymus, that means twin, Thomas, so that you would believe he's identified as the one who was noted as Didymus Thomas with Jesus's 12. And then in the Gospel of Peter, you have Simon Peter at the very end of the manuscript. It says, Simon Peter and my brother Andrew, just so you know which Simon Peter is, he associated him with a family. The Gnostic text did the same thing seeking to convince you of a family relationship. Jude chapter one does the same thing. Jude, the Adelphon of James. 
Same thing. Jude is a popular name. Clarifying which Jude? The brother of James at the church and council of Jerusalem. Tacitus does the same thing when referencing Jesus. In order to identify the Christian movement that was taking place in Rome, he made sure to clarify by using Christus, whom the name of Christianity received its origin, and he makes sure to give the timeline of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate. Now, remember, Tacitus stated numerous times he had records of the Roman Senate, and he received this information throughout his study, and that this Christianity is rising, and he traces it back to a man with the description of the Messiah. He does that in order to identify a person of interest. Suetonius did the same thing. Statements were consistent with this. And remember, uh, we find this consistent in the writings of Pliny and Tacitus back and forth. Christians are meeting for church. They're thinking they're conspiring to overthrow the Roman government. So Suetonius joins in on this conversation of conspiracy, Roman government, what's going on. And he recognizes that this uproar in Rome is going, is by these Christians who followed this Christus, this Christ, this Messiah that's being brought forth. So they recognized an individual starting a movement that was still shaking Rome at the end of the century and into the new century. So premise two, description, family, connections, locations were necessities to identify people of, of interest accurately. Paul identified James as a legal brother, not a potential general brother in order to not confuse his audience with James the less, James the brother of John. Other writers in history utilize these same descriptions in that time period for people of interest as well. Lastly, I want to mention Hegesippus, who continues these terms, same identification of the family of the Lord. He says this, of the family of the Lord, there were still living grandchildren of Jude, who we just talked about, who it is said has been the Lord's brother. There it is again, Adelphu, according to the flesh, meaning it's physical Bloodline. Now, according to Hegesippus, uh, this confusion, this uproar in, Ro in Rome was, was bringing Christianity to talk about this kingdom to overthrow kingdoms. And according to Hegesippus, Domitian sought out the distant relatives of, of Jesus and was able to bring some of the grandchildren of Jude before him, question them about the intention of this kingdom. They declared the kingdom was not of this world. It was a heavenly kingdom. He strictly warned them and dismissed them. And Hegesippus, in describing these events that took place, also pursued in memoirs a dynasty of Jesus' family. He said these words, I made for myself a succession up through Anicetus. And he talks about this dynasty in his memoirs, these family bloodlines of Jesus. So from the time of Jesus, his brother James was the first bishop, if you would, of Jerusalem. And through his descendancy, that relationship to Jesus continued bishops and leaders into the church of Jerusalem up until Simeon was martyred. And then they elected a man named Justice from the audience, not from the dynasty. And now that's important to note. He pinpoints a timeline when Jesus's descendants or his, his friends and family, his close narrative brothers and grandchildren, second, third cousins, etc., were all being cut off from leadership and church because they died out. It was around the time 110. He learned this from his travels in Jerusalem, Corinth, and Rome. So my premise three is this, the family, the dynasty, the diadochene, if you were to use the word diadochene, this dynasty of Jesus continued as leaders within the church of Jerusalem until about the time 110 AD. 
And Justus was the first bishop of Jerusalem elected outside of this diadochian. Therefore, Jesus was a real man who had real relatives that could be traced at least to the early second century, and his fame grew within the Roman Empire, causing havoc for those on the outside looking in. So in a conclusion of all this, Paul's experience before and after his conversion from Pharisee to Christian, he believed in a physical Jesus. He believed he was a heretic at one point and righteously by the law of Moses put to death for what he said and claimed. But after his experience, again, despite what you believe, if it's a vision, hallucination, or a real resurrection, despite what you believe, that change in his life, he believed the resurrected body of Jesus took place, and therefore he changed his position of messiahship. Then we look at the history and the recollection of Paul to his followers, and we find James the brother. James the brother of Jesus was an identified person of interest by family connection, not by general claims. And in the third premise, Hegesippus gave us a story and a dynasty of Jesus, his succession from his brothers all the way to the grandchildren to the time of Simeon and Justice. And with that, I leave my time to Dr. Kerry. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Boyce. And with that, very excited to have you here, folks. If it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are thrilled to have you here, no matter what walk of life you are from, Christian, atheist, Muslim, you name it. We're glad you're here. Hit that subscribe button for more big debates like this one coming up in the future. And I gotta tell you, I'm excited for this one. There's a lot of hype, people in the chat. This is going to be a great debate. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for being here. And Dr. Carrier, the floor is all yours. All right. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. And uh, I've always enjoyed uh, having discussions with Dr. Boyce. Uh, he's one of the more reasonable uh, folks that I engage in. So <laughs> it's good to be here for that. Um, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open with my, my standard bullet point uh, oversimplification of why I'm not convinced by a case like that. And then I'll go into specific examples that uh, Dr. Boyce gave. Um, now, the general thesis that I argue in On the Historicity of Jesus is that there were, for example, um, many categories that Jesus belongs to, one of which is savior cults and savior lords. And there were numerous savior cults at that time. Uh, all of them purport to worship a historical hero. They all have some sort of hero that they claim to place in history um, who didn't exist. We, we, we have no reason to believe any of these savior gods existed but all of these savior cults believe that their savior lord, through some form of suffering, sometimes it's a death, sometimes it's not, through some form of suffering, conquered the forces of death and thus guaranteed a blessed afterlife to their followers, often through baptism and sacred meals. We can show uh, that trend. Uh, we have examples of these cults for Hercules, Dionysus, Osiris, Inanna, Mithras, Salmoxus, and so on. But we have no evidence any of those heroes really existed and good reason to believe they didn't. Therefore, we can't assume Jesus was any more historical than those other heroes. We need evidence that he was uh, an exception because he looks just like them, a Jewish version of them, a Jewish version of a suffering hero who conquered death, thereby uh, guaranteeing a blessed afterlife. So we need good evidence that he was an exception to the rule, uh, the only suffering savior who actually existed. And I don't think there's any good evidence of that. Uh, I'll get into the evidence that Dr. Boyce mentioned, uh, and I'll include that with a bunch of other things that people usually say. The only documents that mention Jesus that were written by anyone alive at the time uh, never clearly place him in real earth history. Paul, for example, Hebrews, first climate. Uh, Paul repeatedly says anything about Jesus was known only from scripture and revelation. Uh, Romans 16 verses 25 to 26, 
uh, even Romans 10, verses 14 to 16, all through Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, and so on. Paul says he received his knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus and the Eucharist sermon of Jesus by revelation directly from the Lord. In other words, Jesus was directly speaking to him from outer space, not from human witnesses. Paul never refers to anyone having been the disciples of Jesus. The word disciple doesn't appear anywhere in Paul or as ever having known him in life. Paul never says that. Paul never really identifies Jesus's mother or father, but speaks of his birth only allegorically or metaphorically. Even when he says born of a woman, it's in a context of an allegorical argument about allegorical seeds of Abraham and allegorical women, uh, all of us being born of Hagar when we were under the law and then born of Sarah uh, when we're uh, saved, basically, we join the resurrection of Jesus. So there's, it's very ambiguous when Paul talks about Jesus being born of a mother. He doesn't name the mother. He doesn't say it's a Jewish mother. He doesn't say anything. It's all in this context of this uh, allegorical argument that Paul even outright says is an allegory. He says, these women are an allegory that I'm talking about, uh, Hagar and Sarah, and who's born of which is a metaphorical argument for the metaphysics of the world. It, he's not talking about biological mothers. Even if he knew the biological mother of Jesus, that's not what he's talking about there. There's no other mention in uh, the epistles of Paul of Jesus having actual parents or naming the parents or anything like that. Paul also mentions brothers of the Lord. There are two mentions in uh, the letters of Paul, but he says all baptized Christians were brothers of the Lord. So we can't tell if he ever meant biological brothers of Jesus. Paul never makes a distinction. So we can't, it's ambiguous again. So we have these ambiguous references. We can't nail them down as definite references to biological relations of Jesus. In fact, there's no clear attestation to Jesus really having lived by any source who lived at the time. Uh, that alone does not mean he didn't exist, but it does mean we lack one of the most important forms of evidence we usually have that someone really existed. And Paul's strange silence about the real Jesus and his whole life and so on, having, and about Jesus having met people on earth while alive, despite writing tens of thousands of words about Jesus, is more to be expected if Jesus was indeed only met in the imagination, as Paul says, in dreams and visions and wasn't a real person. The first we hear of a historical Jesus, like a definite, clear statement that he was a guy walking around on earth, is in the Gospels. But the Gospels are by unknown authors, writing a lifetime later in a foreign land, in a foreign language, and they name no sources. The Gospels are also manifestly mythical uh, in structure and content. In fact, they are full of unbelievable claims, every chapter of every Gospel. And no historical claim they make about Jesus is corroborated anywhere else. And that's actually it. Uh, no later historian had any known sources other than the Gospels that we can establish uh, or Christian informants citing the Gospels. And sources that are not independent of that can't be used to corroborate that. And apart from that, there is no other evidence Jesus really existed. So all we really have is a contemporary, Paul, who says Jesus was only met in visions, and then unbelievable myths written a lifetime later in a foreign language and foreign land, and later historians simply repeating what those myths said, just as they did with other myths, like about Romulus and other figures. And that's all we have. And that's simply not good enough for me to establish that Jesus was the lone exception among all the suffering Savior Lords of the time, the only one who really lived. Now, that's the basic, you know, stump speech, as it were. But I'm going to go into what Dr. Boyce mentioned. How much time do I have? Okay. Um, to be clear, I don't know if it, the way Dr. Boyce presented it, it, I'm not sure if he understands what my theory is that I present uh, in my peer-reviewed work, which is that Paul does believe that Jesus is made of Jewish flesh, Davidic flesh, in fact, uh, and believes that he was became immortal and died and was crucified and was resurrected. The question is where? 
Paul never places any of these things on earth. This is the thing. He says these things, like the crucifixion and the burial, he says, are known from Scripture. He doesn't mention anyone being witnesses to them. Uh, and he says the resurrection or anything else known about Jesus is only gotten from Revelation. When he talks about the story of Jesus, he says the death and resurrection are known by Scripture, and then he was seen by the apostles. There's no mention of Jesus appearing or being seen by anyone before that, uh, for example. So this is actually is why I'm talking about this as a cosmic belief that Paul had. He did believe there was a historical Jesus. It's just in the same sense that there was a historical Satan and a historical Michael and a historical Gabriel. Uh, he thinks these are, cel these are celestial beings engaged in celestial dramas. That's the theory. And then the question is, what does the evidence support? And there's, there's no reference in Paul to him, anyone knowing about Jesus in any other way than scripture and revelation, which supports the cosmic hypothesis. Um, Paul never uses the word descendant. That's nowhere in the letters of Paul. That's an assumption that people bring to the text. And I think this is one of the main problems why historians misread the evidence because they're importing a lot of faith assumptions into the text that aren't there. Um, I already mentioned the born of a woman issue, the Lord's brother issue. Um, Dr. Boyce brings up a new argument that I hadn't heard someone articulate before, which is the, the proposal that uh, we can only explain why Paul names James this way if he meant a biological brother of Jesus. Um, that actually takes the argument out of context. When Paul actually makes this argument, he's swearing up and down to the Galatians that he never spoke to anyone, that he only heard the gospel from Jesus, and he never spoke to any Christian about the secrets of the gospel until years later. And so he says on the one occasion, even then, he says, I only met, basically says, I met none of the apostles except, he says, I met Peter, but I met no other apostle. He says, I met of the apostles, I met no one. Uh, and then he says, only James. And if you look at the grammar, if Paul meant he met two apostles, he would have said, I met two apostles, Peter and James, the brother of the Lord, for example. He doesn't say that. He uses really elaborate uh, Greek grammar. Um, L. Trudinger talks about this, and I have cite him in my, in my work, uh, that the grammar actually is exclusive. It actually, the way the grammar, the grammar that Paul chose in the Greek uh, is saying that this James is not an apostle. He's saying, I met no other apostles, but I met this guy named James, who was a brother. This is a brother of the Lord. Uh, could mean a biological, could mean a biological brother, could mean a baptized Christian. But in any case, I think it's very clear, and many Bible translations now agree with this, is that uh, Paul is actually saying that this James is not the Apostle James. He's saying it's some other James. And the only reason he names him is because he has to in his argument. He has to name the people he met or else he'd be called out as a liar. So he's saying, you know, I met these people. I only met one apostle. It was Cephas. Uh, but I also met James, brother of the Lord, on that occasion. And he says, then years later, I went back and met more, met more of them. So in the context, that's what Paul is, Paul is doing here. It doesn't matter. He's not trying to specify a particular James. He's just saying, I met a James. He was a brother of the Lord but I met no other apostles, just Kephos. That, that's actually what the grammar says in there. Um, and that leaves it ambiguous. So we, we don't know if he means about just a regular rank and file Christian or if he means some sort of special category Christian um, that wasn't an apostle. Um, the stuff about uh, Kephos, there's a story in the Gospels about how Jesus named Kephos. Uh, and I do think that is an assigned name. I think Kephos is not... It is not a natural name. It is sort of a nickname. It basically, you know, it's basically calling yourself the rock, uh, like the actor. Um, it's not a real name. I think it was an assigned name, but it could have been assigned by revelation. The first, Peter could have had a revelation of Jesus who assigned him that name, and then it got turned into an earthly story in the Gospels. We can't prove otherwise, so it's 50-50 either way. We need some other evidence to ascertain which storyline actually explains the evidence. And when you get to Josephus, uh, we don't have any evidence that Josephus had any sources for this. Now, of course, I don't, we can get into 
why I don't even think Josephus mentioned Christ in this James passage. I think he's ta- he mentioned originally Jesus, the son of Damnius. There's a whole story where I think this is a corruption that occurred later by accident in the scribal transmission of the text. But even if that's not the case, we have no evidence that Josephus has any sources by which he would know that Christians called all the brothers of the Lord or called all baptized Christians brothers of the Lord. So when he's telling a story about a prominent brother of the Lord, we can't establish that Josephus knows that this is a biological brother or just a cultic brother. So the information is actually unusable uh, simply because he doesn't give sources with details as, as to indicate to us that he knows anything more than what we already see in the letters of Paul or in the Gospels, for example. Uh, when we get to Tacitus, none of the information in Tacitus does Tacitus say comes from the Neronian period. Tacitus is writing in the early second century. If if Tacitus even said these things, I think I doubt he did. But even if he did, uh, he would have been getting it from Christian informants. In fact, the most likely source would be his best buddy Pliny the Younger, who they corresponded a lot uh, about material to put into Tacitus's history. So he would have gotten the information from Pliny, who got it from the Christians he interrogated, uh, and in they could be quoting the Gospels at them. So we don't have example here from Tacitus of anything that corroborates the Gospels. It's just repetition of the same information that's spreading around that originated with the Gospels. So that doesn't help us determine whether the Gospels are myths or histories or not. Suetonius uh, Crestus, specifically in the Latin, very clearly, Crestus is someone in Rome instigating at that time under the reign of Claudius. This is well after Jesus would have died. Can't be the same guy. So that, there's no way that that has any reference after the historical Jesus. And when we get to Hegesippus, this is late 2nd century, 180 to 200 AD. Hegesippus, we don't have. We have quotations from him. But the quotations we have from him are full of really absurd apocrypha, ridiculous legends and stories. His story about James, the brother of the Lord, for instance, is not a single part of it is historically plausible, uh, for instance. So he, we're talking about, now we're looking at 100, 150 years after the fact, where legends had grown up about the family of Jesus. But when you go 100 years earlier, you find no evidence that any of these legends exist or are true. Uh, and even in Acts, you look in Acts, you find no evidence that any of this stuff is true. Uh, in Acts, very prominently, not a single member of the family of Jesus is ever in a leadership position uh, in there. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, is mentioned as being with the church, but he is not either of the Jameses that are mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, it lists the Jameses that are in the apostles, and neither of them is the brother of Jesus. And then it separately mentions that the brothers of Jesus were also there. So Acts, the author of Acts, does not see them as the same people. Acts has no knowledge of the family of Jesus ever being involved uh, in, the, in the teaching of the church. And that, to me, would be impossible unless Acts is completely erasing history or completely altering it, which eliminates it as a method or as a source. Uh, or it wasn't true. It was a later legend that was invented. So we can't use that uh, to back up the historicity of Jesus. Uh, and what's my time left? Okay. And that's the gist. Um, obviously, in a debate like this, there's like a million threads we could go down and argue in particular. Uh, I'm summarizing, I'm being brief. Uh, so all of these things, you will find evidence and discussion of uh, in, on my blog, uh, or in my book on the historicity of Jesus, you'd find the scholarship cited, you can find the footnotes and a lot more detail, different arguments and back and forth that you could have on these things. But the upshot of all of it is, is all of this evidence is extremely ambiguous, and you have to put layers and layers of interpretation on it just to get the result that Dr. Boyce wants to get. That should not be the case. It should be much easier to prove the historicity of Jesus. Paul should be talking about his life, should be talking about people having met him. People should be asking Paul questions about that. Paul should be forced to fight arguments, to respond to arguments 
about this fact that Paul did not meet Jesus in person. That argument never comes up. Paul never has to argue against that. Uh, so there's, there's many opportunities in Paul where the life of Jesus, the reality of Jesus should come up, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, and when, when it does come up, when Paul talks about how we know anything about Jesus, he only says revelation and scripture. Those are the only sources that he mentions happening as, as sources for anything. That's really weird. And that requires explanation. And then when we get to the gospels, again, unsourced, uh, we had in a foreign language, foreign country, no way to fact check them, no evidence anyone did. Uh, and these kind, these gospels are similar in what they do to the gospels, the sort of stories told of all these other savior heroes. They had similar historical narratives told about them in history, doing things, performing feats and teaching lessons and uh, so on, or even getting killed, as the case may be. Uh, but those stories are false, too. So the question is, the go- we, we need more evidence that the Gospels are more than just a myth built to allegorize uh, the teachings of the Gospel, the same way all other uh, savior cults did with their thing. Uh, same with you could do with Moses. You know, Moses didn't exist, but the stories were told. He was given a family, he was given a narrative, he was given teachings, he was given struggles, and so on all to sort of narrativize and teach the Jewish teachings, uh, their, their origin story, but more importantly, the laws and why they follow them. So the same reason would be, the same motivation would be to invent the Jesus figure in the same context. By the time we get to the second century, we're so far removed from these sources that we have no evidence of anyone being aware uh, of the actual sources of the Gospels. They, what we have are extant, are people who just believe what the Gospels said were true, just like people who would believe that mo- the stories about Moses are true or the stories about the Roman founder of Romulus was true. Uh, And we have no evidence from them that they had sources for any of the other wild legends that started growing up at this time. So we can't rely on that to reconstruct the historical Jesus either. And I think when we look at that and triangulate, uh, it doesn't put good odds on the historicity of Jesus after all. Thank you very much for that opening statement as well, Dr. Carrier. And folks, want to let you know, in case you missed it, the bottom right of your screen, tomorrow morning we'll be having an especially controversial debate. You don't want to miss it. That's at the bottom right of your screen. And so hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. We're going to jump into rebuttals now, which are shorter. It's going to be an eight-minute rebuttal, followed by a six-minute, and then open dialogue. So, Dr. Boyce, thanks so much. The floor is all yours for that eight-minute rebuttal. I made sure I unmuted that time. <clears throat> All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Carrier, for your presentation and, and your opening. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed conversation with you. I've never had any issues. Uh, we, I always walk away at least learning something, right? A uh, couple things that uh, I'd, I'd like to, to push back on a little bit in the fact that, uh, for example, the allegorical side of Abraham descendancy, it was a physical promise in the past that was allegorized for his audience, but the, the application of that allegory had literal effects. And so I think at that point, when he's talking about the different wives, talking about Hagar with Ishmael and uh, Sarah uh, with Isaac, there was a paralleled indication based on this was your spirituality. Now this is your spirituality. But by the time he gets to chapter four, He's actually bringing the finality of consummation. The allegories all pointed to this, this illustration all pointed to this, that in the fullness of time, which is a literal statement, not an allegorical statement, God sent forth his son born of a woman, not of one of those women that he was mentioning with Hagar or Sarah, but rather the allegory, the systematic uh, approach to what we would call exegesis of that text. He said has spiritual implications 
but God brought it to finality. And now your descendancy is through that by faith. So he used an allegory. I agree with that hundred percent, but I think that allegory had a consummation that had a literal effect in the fullness of time. Um, the, the statement about uh, James is, is going to be an interesting one that it was a random person that the pro the only problem I'd push back on that is that he doesn't just mention that one time for the rest of Galatians. He mentions James again. In fact, he mentions James as one of the pillars with John and Cephas. So we don't know what James that is. If he doesn't establish a James already in the book, since he established which James it is in chapter one, he doesn't have to reestablish his identity the rest of the time, which is what we see. He mentions James two more times with the group of the lead apostles uh, with John and Cephas. So because he already established which James in chapter one, he doesn't have to reestablish again. And we see this consistently, as I mentioned in Acts chapter 12, you have two Jameses there. In order to not conflate them or confuse them, he identified James, the brother of John, physical brother, in order to distinguish him from the James that came up from Jerusalem so that they weren't confusing which James was martyred by Herod. And we see writers constantly transition out of that. So I don't think that James was just a baptized brother. That doesn't give any credibility to the audience because he's making a claim of promise and that's allowing himself to be challenged on it a little bit too. And so to have a person of interest, there needs to be more clarity than James. And the fact that he repeats James's name, he already established which James it is by identifying him early on. That, that is a systematic approach to writing that's consistent at that time. And that's natural because there's so many people with the same name. Again, James is the 11th most common name. It's just the Greek version of Jacob's name uh, in Hebrew. And so there's a lot of clarity going on. There. And that's why he uses Cephas's name in groups. But when it comes back to being individual, just by himself, it's Peter, his Greek name, because he's distinguishing and setting him aside as an identifiable, uh, identifiable person of interest. Now, I, I do find it interesting. So none of the other gospels and, you know, I, I've watched um, uh, numerous times uh, Dr. Ehrman talk about this. I think he debated uh, Dr. Price on this matter many years ago. I can't remember. He even went so far to say that the four gospels are first century independent sources of themselves that support it. Now, I agree with Dr. Ehrman. I think they are. And, and, and at some point, I think Dr. Karen and I might even touch on Luke in a different debate. I'm sad we don't get to do it this one, but maybe some other time. So I don't, in fact, I want to make sure this debate just stays outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not because I don't believe in them and trust them. I just don't think it it's needed for all the material we're laying out right now to prove a historical Jesus. But I would say that they are independent sources uh, that, that give precedence, whether you believe their eyewitness accounts or not, they're relating information that was even, if you want to believe traditionally passed down to them through the families. Now I, I, I want to mention Hegesippus. You mentioned uh, that they were there towards the end of this. He was there towards the end of the second century into the third, but he was actually from 110 to 180. He died in 180. Most of his research was done around 150 in the middle of the second century. And he traveled particularly to uh, Rome and to Jerusalem. And he kept memoirs and he actually went to Corinth as well. He mentions his travels running into guys that were trained by Paul, like uh, Clement of Rome, for example. He apparently had ran into his writings, quotes his writings. Now, we mentioned the fact that he is a, 
secondhand information from Eusebius, which is true. But remember, Eusebius was a court historian for Rome. His work was not without being criticized. In fact, he was very criticized often because they felt like he had theological biases when siding with uh, individuals over Papias on the kingdom and things like that. But very few times was he pushed back by his peer-reviewed histories on his historical criteria. Because remember, Eusebius had records from Edessa, and we and for your audience that may not know this, he had records from Edessa. He had the library there in Caesarea commissioned by Constantine. He was under the watchful eye of Rome and Christianity. Uh, so anything he said would and could and did get held against him as a way of peer review. So he reporting Hegesippus's claims actually in his description quotes the preface of his volumes and memoirs um, was relaying information that he had received from the churches that actually housed Paul and the apostles and the others that were eyewitnesses. These are records that he took and anybody at any point could have pushed back against Eusebius on that, but he was just relaying the information he received from Hegesippus. And we also know that guys like Africanus were dealing with the idea of the resurrection and the death per se, specifically on the death, like what happened when it went completely dark. He makes an uh, argument that um, Thallus said it was just a, an eclipse. It was just a special one-of-a-kind event. And then Africanus concludes based on Thallus, who's in the first century, this is nonsense. Like, I don't agree with him. But Thallus wasn't defending Jesus. He was actually trying to explain a naturalistic way of how the times went dark while Jesus was on the cross. He was trying to naturalistically explain it away. And Africanus was reading the research of Thallus and pushing back against it. And yet, so Thallus was also a first century witness by record to resist Jesus's explanation of death, not to support it. And Africanus almost used it as a punching bag to straw man him back. So we do see others in addition to that. And as far as Tacitus goes, I don't know how much time. How much time do I have, James? Okay, well, I might get to, uh, we get one more, so we'll go through this. But as far as Tacitus goes, we got to remember about Tacitus. I don't think he necessarily got his information from rumor. And he may have corresponded with plenty, of course, about this. We know he did. But we have to remember Tacitus on numerous occasions stated that he received information from records. He was given full access to Roman records. And if you look at the language of Tacitus there, he says, our leader, Pontius Pilate, he was speaking on behalf of a Roman, not so much about information. He declares an actual time in the time of Tiberius. That's a specific time under a specific ruler. It's almost as if he went to the archives to find time, place, leadership, and event, because he's trying to trace Christianity's blow up to where it all started. And he pinned its origin to the time of our leader, Pontius Pilate. So I, I think that his information probably came more from, from archives and uh, information he had received at that time as well. I'll concede that we have another cross, so I'll, I'll concede to the next section, James. You got it. We'll jump into the eight-minute rebuttal from Dr. Carrier as well. Floor is all yours. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, <clears throat> Yes, I actually, I agree that when in Galatians, Paul is talking about an actual event. Uh, when he says that Jesus became incarnate, when he implies that he became incarnate and died and resurrected, it, that is a historical event that occurred recently in Paul's mind. The question is where? Uh, Paul never places that event on earth and implies that it didn't 
occur on earth. That's why I mentioned all the other stuff about Paul never says any, any source about Jesus other than scripture and revelation. Uh, so that's the question, uh, the issue there. Um, so there was a literal culmination in Paul's mind, but I think you got the order of backwards. Um, Paul talks about the allegory of Abraham's seed for how Gentiles become, you know, effectively spiritually Jewish in Galatians 3. In Galatians 4, he starts with, which is actually the middle of the argument, but he starts the chapter with uh, how Jesus, this basically this creedal formula about how Jesus uh, was born under the law, uh, born of a woman, made of a woman, actually. He uses uh, the phrase that Paul prefers to use for God's manufacturing of things rather than personal birth. Immediately after that uh, is where he, where Paul then says, these women, not immediately after that, but immediately after that, he talks about the argument of the Sarah and Hagar story. And then he says, these, this is an allegory. And he says, being born of Hagar means being born to the world order, being born under the law. Uh, being born of Sarah is what happens when you are released from that. So if you were able to interrogate Paul, according to the line of his argument, he would have said, oh, yes, so Jesus was born of Hagar so that he could die to the law. Then he was raised from God, and so he's also born of Sarah at that point, just as we will be, or just as we are, uh, if, to understand the argument. And if people read the argument from Galatians 3 to Galatians 4, you can see this is the rhetoric that Paul is building. So uh, Paul is not, you, there isn't any reason for Paul to mention Jesus being born of a mother or made of a mother um, there, other than the only reason that he gives, which is he's talking about what mothers mean, what he's talking about when he's talking about mothers. Uh, so when you read it in context, you, you don't get anything historical out of it. Uh, and, and so I, I, it's just not usable uh, as evidence in that regard. For people who want to go into that more, I strongly recommend, I wrote a blog on how Galatians, yes, Galatians is allegorical, uh, and where I go into the rhetoric and the structure of the argument and how you can see what Paul is doing there. Uh, I think to understand the passage, you really got to look at it in context and get the order of uh, the order and structure of his argument uh, in the right way. Um, in Galatians, no, in uh, in Galatians two, um, Paul does not say it's the same James in Galatians two that he's talked about in Galatians one. He does identify differently the James in Galatians two as the pillar. He's one of the top three apostles. So he already has identified that James, and he's identified him differently than he identified the James in Galatians 1. And I want to reiterate, like, if Paul had meant to say that he met two, two of the pillars even, uh, but two of apostles, he would have said, I met two apostles, or I met only two apostles, and then named them. He doesn't say that. He says, of the apostles, or he says, you know, I, I went to meet the apostles, I met Peter, but I met no other apostles. I only met James, the brother of the Lord. And like I said, several Bible translations, official Bible translation committees, uh, peer-reviewed literature, L. Schrodinger's article, and so on, established pretty clearly when you look at the grammar, there's nothing else Paul could mean than that the James he's talking about there is not an apostle. And the only reason he's mentioning him is that he's bound to, he has to. Uh, he can't leave out any person that he met at that, that time because then he might be accused of lying or trying to hide something. So he just throws that in there. There's no other reason for him to mention it other than the fact that he is required by his argument to mention everybody he meant on that occasion. He met on that occasion. And he's very, you know, that's how he's identifying it. So he's saying, I just met a rank and file Christian James at that time and the apostle Peter. And then in Galatians 2, then he's talking about a different group of people. Uh, he's talking about Kephas again, but he's talking about the pillars. And so he says, James, the, you know, James, John, and Kephas, the pillars. Uh, so, so we know that Paul is actually distinguishing these two James. They're not the same people. The James in Galatians 2 is an apostle. The, gospel, the James in Galatians 1 is not an apostle as the grammar dictates. So, uh, so I don't think that, that argument is usable. Um, I won't go too much into the Gospels being independent sources. I mean, 
tons of evidence that they're not. I think even people, anybody who's watching this debate knows all the evidence that the Gospels used, in many cases outright quoted each other, uh, used each other as sources, and, and never cite any other sources. So uh, there's no evidence that the Gospels are independent in the sense that's relevant to this, uh, which means not didn't know about each other, but had separate sources from each other. There's no evidence if that's the case. So you, you can't use that as an argument, because we just don't have evidence of that being the case. Um, we don't know when Hegesippus learned anything. So talking about his career, he doesn't say where or when he learns particular stories. And when he tells the stories, they're ridiculous stories. Like the story about James, if you read it, it there's nothing in it that's historically plausible. It reads like the, you know, the Acts of John or any of the other sort of ridiculous apocrypha that was being fabricated at the time. Uh, so we can't establish that Hegesippus has any sources for any of this stuff. There's no corroboration for it for anything earlier. He doesn't even mention having any sources. He doesn't say who his sources were. He doesn't say how he checked these things, where he learned them from. Uh, the story about James, he clearly got from some sort of apocryphal Christian text, uh, an apocryphal acts, like the Acts of James, perhaps. Um, so uh, we can't make any assumptions about where he's getting his information there. Um, and the reason there's no pushback is because everybody who would have pushed back their books aren't being preserved. Um, so if you look at, take for example, Hegesippus' ridiculous, completely unbelievable story about James, where, where he's actually buried next to the temple, a complete violation of Jewish law. Uh, there, there's many other things in there that is just not even remotely believable. No one pushed back on that because they, they liked that story. They wanted to use that story. The Christian elite that were preserving documents for us to know of it now, they liked the story. They didn't corroborate it. They didn't check it. There's no peer review going on here. This is a propaganda mill that is deciding which made up stories they're going to prove and which one's not. Uh, and of course, notice which are the ones we don't get to read Hegesippus even, right? So there's a ton of things Hegesippus wrote that we weren't allowed to read. They only picked things that, hey, Eusebius only picked things out of Hegesippus that he wanted to cite because he liked the stories. There's no evidence that Eusebius corroborated them. There's no evidence that anyone else fact-checked them. Uh, these are just the stories Christians wanted to tell. And because they're blatantly and obviously false, like the James story in Hegesippus, we know they have no reliable checks on what they're deciding uh, to preserve. So there, there's no historical uh, fact-checking going on here at all. And that's actually quite clear, which is why we can't trust things like this. We have tons of examples of that kind of thing as well. Um, <clears throat> what's my time left? All right, I'll briefly mention, okay, I, I, I don't know um, how much you've gone into Thallus. Decisively, conclusively, we know Thallus never mentioned Jesus nor wrote in the first century. Africanus is using a mention of an event unrelated to Jesus and tying Jesus to it. He's basically constructing history using sources that don't mention Jesus. Thallus didn't mention Jesus. This is Africanus himself making up a story using uh, Thallus's uh, details about an earthquake in um, Nicaea at the same time there's a full eclipse in Nicaea. Now neither of these events occurred in Jerusalem nor would have been visible or experienceable there. So Africanus is really playing fast and loose with his source. Uh, but Thallus definitely didn't mention Jesus so we can't reference that. And we know Tacitus did not have a source um, from the early period because we know the source that he used for the Neronian era is the history of Rome by Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder was actually there. Uh, and uh, so he wrote a whole book, a whole volume on the reign of Nero. That's Tacitus' likely source for the main details here. But we know that this Pliny the Elder did not mention anything about Tiberius executing Christ or any of that, because his son, uh, adopted son, Pliny the Younger, uh, writes to, type, writes to um, Trajan saying he doesn't know anything about these Christians. And Pliny the Younger was a devotee of his father's works. He read them uh, assiduously, had his notebooks, read his notebooks and everything. 
Pliny the Younger clearly had never heard this story that we see in Tacitus when he's writing to Trajan, other than through interrogating Christians. So it's clear that if his father had mentioned these details, he would have mentioned these details to, uh, to Trajan, because it would have been perfectly relevant uh, to any kind of legal trial that Pliny was going on and to there. time. Uh, so that's why we disregard that. So We're going to jump into six-minute rebuttals, folks. Have to draw your attention. We are absolutely thrilled for the first time ever. Superstar debater Shabir Ali will be joining us for the first time this coming Monday, as you can see at the bottom right of your screen, debating on whether or not, or namely, who Jesus was, whether or not Jesus fits better in the Quran or in the Bible. So that's a juicy one. You don't want to miss it. And with that, jumping into six-minute rebuttals, I've got the timer set. Dr. Boyce, the floor is all yours. Or you might be on... I'll get it. I promise. By the end of this, I'm going to get this done right. Okay. All right. Again, thank you, Dr. Carrier, for your response. I, I appreciate the information you're sharing uh, and uh, appreciate the manner in which you're sharing it as well. Uh, just a couple more responses to this. I, I would make the claim when it comes to particularly the discussion of chapter four of Galatians with Abraham himself. Remember, the Jews, and even by convincement of the Old Testament scriptures of Paul, they were looking for a physical bloodline descendant of Abraham, who would have been um, through also that Davidic blind, uh, bloodline as well. But if it doesn't go back to a physical bloodline, remember, these Jews in, in Greeks he's writing to in Galatia were not eyewitnesses of Jesus's ministry. They're secondhand informants of it. So to convince them, they need to have substantial evidence. And if a Messiah did not physically come into the world and physically be born, they're not going to believe in him. He's disqualified. It had to be a Jew who fulfilled in his life the law. And that's why Paul said he was under the law. He, uh, he was abiding the law. He kept the law. He fulfilled the law. There's, there's a major implication there. It would have been impossible to persuade the thousands of Jews and Gentiles through the law, the law and the Torah and the prophets that a Messiah came without a physical birth as a Jew from the bloodline of Abraham. There had to be some sort. They're not just going to whimsically fall into that. There had to be something substantial for them to many of them to trash their pagan gods and move on to believing in this resurrected Jesus. There had to be some sort of, uh, affirming of a physical man who was in that time, who was killed, who was crucified, and they believed the report from the eyewitnesses that they were resurrected. Now, uh, the, the statement that uh, Paul never talks about really earth, but when we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, he uses this defense almost in a, in a, in a courtroom kind of setting, defending this resurrection, particularly makes mention of not only that he died, but that he was physically buried. There was some sort of burial for him. That, that indicates something we do here on earth, not something up in, in outer space as much. To me, there's a, there's a earth element there when he deals not only with the death, but a physical burial. And remember, Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was trained by Gamaliel, as I stated in my earlier statements of, of um, Paul's ministry as a Pharisee. He was there when Stephen accused his counsel of killing the son of God, he was there. Um, it wasn't like they were, well, who is this Jesus guy? Even though Paul wrote in the fifties, he was alive during the time period 
that Jesus would have been on earth. He wouldn't have believed something. He's not somebody believing a report 20 years later. He was alive when Christians were claiming this about a guy back when he was still a Pharisee. And his event of conversion is not very much long after that. So he wouldn't have just believed in somebody that didn't exist unless he actually knew there was a guy that they put to death. The question between the Pharisees and the Christians was not Jesus, not his crucifixion, not his death, or whether the Jews put him to death. They blamed him for it. The question is, what happened to that body? That was the debate between the Pharisees and the Christians. And Paul utilizes that later in Acts when he's actually stuck between the Sanhedrin. He's turning around and they're like, all right, we're going to put that, we're going to harm him. He says, look, am I on trial because I believe in a resurrection? Because he knew in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection of the body and the Pharisees did. He said, I'm just teaching what our fathers always taught, that people rise physically from the dead. Am I on trial for that? Then they fought with each other and the Romans pulled them out of there. He, what that tells us is that the debate between Pharisees and Christians was not about the body, the death, who killed Jesus, how he died. It was what happened after he died. So again, I think Paul was fully believing in the historical man of Jesus, even as a Pharisee, because he was alive when his Sanhedrin was even being accused of killing him and murdering, as the word Stephen used. As far as the James goes, I, I again, I, I think that it's not this, I do think it's the same James, because he's not talking about apostles as much as pillars in the church back at Jerusalem, which would have included that James. The other James would have been killed by that point, and there's a James the less, but there, if there's no distinguishing difference, we're left with the question of, I don't know what James that is but he's already identified a James by association in chapter one. And there's some dispute that we could have, I guess, if, um, on the translation part of uh, I may there in Greek at the transition of um, accept or in place of the apostle, whatever you want to translate there, there is good dispute, but it is also contextually used in other places in the same manner, meaning except. And the good evidence of this is actually in 1 Corinthians 15, because he mentions James independently from the 12 there, and he doesn't give the clarification of which James, because the other Jameses are in the 12. So it's clear he's not talking about James the just or James the brother of John, because he establishes in chapter 12 a separate group, the group of the 12 so that leaves one leader left in Jerusalem who would have been an eyewitness. Now, remember, at that time, there is there is discussions, and Paul would have been a lot earlier than some of the gospel accounts that we have. But in that time, remember, he is going off of stories that he has received. We know that through Jerome preserving and translating from Caesarea a document from a Hebrew Matthew's gospel, that Jesus did have a physical appearance to James. It's very possible that information is consistent with what what Paul received, that James had an appearance. Uh, as far as the Gospels go as independent sources, uh, though they may use or borrow whatever term we want to use there from each other, they are independent in places, many places. You have the Lucan sources versus the Matthean sources. John is very, very independent from the others, although he uses some of the same stories. There, do see, there does seem to be independent sources, although they do borrow from each other, and you may even argue that perhaps Dr. Carey, that they correct each other, et cetera, and that's fine, but there are places where they do bring independent material about Jesus within their own sources, uh, as we see. Thank you very much. We are going to jump into the six-minute rebuttal from Dr. Carrier as well, followed by open conversation, and we'll have Q&A coming up later on, folks, so get your questions in. And with that, Dr. Carrier, the floor is all yours.
Okay, uh, I'll take the points backwards this time. Um, there's no evidence that any of the material that the Gospels introduce each one of them had a source. They don't cite sources. They don't name sources. We have no evidence that these sources exist. So we can't argue from the speculation that they might have had sources. That's not evidence. So we can't argue from that. Um, we don't know uh, that the James appearance in 1 Corinthians is a biological brother of Jesus. Paul doesn't say that. So we don't know which James that is. Um, so that, that's not usable uh, in this argument either. Um, to say that there is good dispute about the grammar, um, I don't think the, I think the debate is pretty well uh, solidly on one side. Um, but the fact that there's a dispute means we also can't use the passage, right? So if, it's, if there's a dispute, it's unresolved. If that's your position, then we can't rest a premise on that either. So, so that argument is cooked. Uh, so this is the, pro the problem that we run into there. Now, I think the, if you look into the debate, you'll find that the, the Trudinger is actually right about this. Um, there actually are no similar constructions in Paul. This is a unique, uh, particular construction. Um, the the uh, There are other examples of this construction in Greek literature, but Trudinger actually points out uh, that they actually are doing what Trudinger is saying, where they're actually making an exception within a group. The common group here is Christians, and he's talking about apostles and then someone who's not an apostle. That's how this structure often gets used exactly in this way. Um, I actually did a blog post about this recently, so people <clears throat> who are interested can check that out too. Um, uh, Paul says the ones called pillars in, in uh, Galatians 2. So he's talking about a known designation. So this isn't just something he's making up. This is something that people recognize. When he says the ones called pillars, uh, everybody knows what he means. So that, that, is a, that is a clear demonstration. And there are three of them, and he names them. So there's no dispute to anyone. No one would be confused as to which James he means there. So he's actually very carefully designated which James he means there. So that doesn't help us with, James, with Galatians 1. Um, there's actually no concern about the body in Acts. Uh, this is, I didn't make, bring this argument because it's kind of a digression, I think, but it's in the book uh, on the historicity of Jesus in chapter nine. This is actually a really weird feature of Acts that there is no concern, not by the Romans, not by the Jews. It never comes up uh, in trial as to what happened to the body. Uh, no one's even talking about it. Uh, so th that's kind of weird. Uh, you might want to wonder how to, how to explain that. Uh, it could be that Acts is actually working from an earlier version of the story in which there was no body to account for. Uh, when you look at the trials of Paul, the dispute is always about whether he had a vision, whether the vision was authentic, and whether uh, it or, or was fake or not. Uh, and and it's always it's always focuses on Paul's vision as actually the thing that converts him. Uh, and I want to I wasn't going to bring it up before because it's kind of not relevant. Um, the fact that the Acts claims that Paul was there for the uh, execution of Stephen. That doesn't tell us what Paul or Stephen were saying or believing at the time. Book of Acts is a post-gospel text, so, uh, so that it doesn't help us uh, determine what was actually going on at the time. But Paul says himself in Galatians 1 that no one in Judea knew him until long after he converted. So we know this story in Acts is false. Paul was not there. He did not witness the execution of Stephen. Uh, that did not happen. Paul himself says it did not happen because he says he wasn't even, never even there. No one had even seen him until he didn't even visit Jerusalem uh, until long after uh, his conversion. So that's an example of why we can't really rely on Acts uh, for this. Uh, we need to go to Paul, and Paul just doesn't corroborate any of these details. Uh, the question is, uh, died and buried. Yes, I do think Paul is talking about an actual death and an actual burial. Um, this is why I have a whole section in on the history of Jesus where I go through the Jewish Apocrypha, the Talmud, and, other, and Christian texts showing that it was a belief at the time that every level of heaven, including the firmament, had copies of everything on earth. So there were gardens and castles and things like that. Uh, Hebrews even mentions this, that there's a copy of everything in the heavens. 
Uh, and there's different kinds, the Talmud and other sources talk about the different in, increasingly superior copies as you go up the levels. So there's like a version of everything going up. Uh, so yeah, there were gardens and things in uh, in the firmament and stuff for, in which one could be buried. And in fact, we have the apocryphal story of Adam and Eve, with the life of Adam and Eve, which is a text around the same time that Christianity began, um, that attests to the fact that there were people, Jewish writers, believing that Adam and Eve were actually brought up to the third heaven and buried in the garden there. The original Garden of Eden is actually in outer space there. There's lots of examples of this, scrolls, chariots, castles, and so on, of everything in all the levels of heaven. So, so that is not a problem. That is what they believed about the world. Uh, it's weird to us now, that, that belief, but that is what they believed then. So we, and we have to interpret what they're saying and what was possible in the context of their worldview of how they understand the world to work, not the way we do. Um, and Galatians 4 has nothing to do with anyone arguing about the physical bloodline of Jesus. That's not an argument that comes up there. Uh, if Paul ever had to make that argument, we don't know what argument he made. Um, now, we, I do think that Paul believed that there was physical Davidic uh, flesh in Jesus. Uh, when he's, when in Romans 1, he actually, I think he's actually quoting or paraphrasing or drawing on the Nathan prophecy, which says, if you read it literally, it says that uh, the Messiah will come literally from the semen directly from David. Like there, there won't be a, a descendancy. There won't be a, a, any kind of intermission. They will be literally the son of, of David. Now, that's because the Nathan prophecy was originally about Solomon. Uh, so it actually did mean literally uh, the son of David would be the Messiah. Um, Later interpreters, of course, could read that in different ways. But if you read it literally, uh, it sounds like God has arranged a direct uh, relationship, that he's actually made the body of Jesus out of uh, Davidic seed directly. Um, whether that's the case or not, Paul never says. It's unclear. So we can't really establish it from the text that Paul disagreed with this. Uh, Paul wouldn't mention just birth by a woman to establish messianic uh, birth because a woman could be anybody. He didn't say Jewish woman. He didn't say woman descended from David or woman descended from Abraham. He, did, he doesn't, it's not how he's saying woman here. He says born under the law, born under a woman. And then when he's talking about the different, the control of the law over people and stuff, he goes through, these women I'm talking about are allegories. This is a born under a woman is an allegory for which world order you're born into. And that's, Paul very clearly says that. So that, that's what's going on here. It's that kind of story. Paul's not in this place talking yeah. about the Davidic ancestry of Jesus. That's not relevant to the story there time. Thank you very much. We're going to jump into open conversation, folks. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, the floor is all yours. Uh, am I muted? Oh, I made it. All right. Yeah. yeah <clears> you're right. So, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Carrier, for your presentation. I appreciate uh, <clears throat> the uh, disposition and how this is going. I'd like to continue that here in the next 30 minutes. Uh, I, I do have a question, and, and, I'll, and you can shoot right back at me after this one, um, if you don't mind me going first here. Sure. Um, yeah, the argument here from Galatians about not being in Jerusalem was particularly about him not being a part of cooperating with the actual alleged, you would say alleged eyewitnesses, but he's not saying he could, wasn't. Could you clarify what you're talking about? Uh, there's no Jerusalem in Galatians. You don't. You mean a different passage, I think. No, no. Well, it, you're talking about how he never went. He was he was not there. You oh, said he was oh, I not, see. I get you. I understand. Yeah. Uh, Galatians one, yeah. Paul's discussion of his geographic travels. Gotcha. I'm on page geographic travels. Exactly. Yeah. So, but particularly, he's talking about the dealings with the apostles. But he was obviously there beforehand, right? Because I mean, in chapter number one, no, he, he said, literally says, "I was unknown to any of the churches of Judea until he." returned uh well he was unknown 
he was so unknown. He, he, to can't, the he can't have been known. Yeah, but if they knew him as a persecutor, if they'd watched him sit there and collect the clothes of Stephen, uh, you know that that that's that would contradict Paul's statement. Paul very clearly well, understands that he, yeah. he wasn't in Jerusalem and during this time. He didn't come back. But, but, he persecuted well, Christianity have, elsewhere. But how, let me ask you this: He says, "For you have heard of my former ways." of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church. Where else yeah. would he have done that in Judaism? Well, he mentions returning to Damascus to do it. Uh, he was doing it in the diaspora. But where did he get sent from? Where was the council that sent him out? Well, Paul never says, right? So that, that doesn't well, it's Jerusalem, right? Oh, the Sanhedrin. Acts says well, that, but that contradicts Paul, where Paul says he was never in Jerusalem until later. So yeah, he, if he's commissioned remember, he by says, the Sanhedrin, yeah, but, but notice, here's he, my he question. Says, if he's questioned by the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is based out of what place? Well, Paul never mentions being in or being questioned by the Sanhedrin. So, well, he was a Pharisee um, of Pharisees. That's a part of the Sanhedrin. Correct. That's, that no, was a claim. No, 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 no. Pharisee, Josephus was a Pharisee, for example. Josephus was not a Sanhedrin member. Uh, the Sanhedrin is a body of 72 people who enforces law in particular cities. In fact, there's technically correct. a Sanhedrin in every city, but uh, there's the Jerusalem Sanhedrin is usually called the Sanhedrin. Um, but that's 72 people. Pharisees were thousands, probably millions of Jews. Uh, Pharisees were a sect uh, that studied under a particular sect. So so those aren't the same thing. Paul says, I'm, I'm not getting the exact wording, but it's very close to this. He says, I was unknown to the churches in Judea. They only knew that I persecuted Christians, which means that no one knew that him persecuting Christians in Judea, right? Because he's explicitly saying that I wasn't persecuting Christians in Judea or else they would have known him. Uh, they only knew of him persecuting Christians elsewhere. That's what Paul says himself in Galatians 1. So, yeah, but so that Acts based is inventing... on his level of persecution. Oh, I agree with, here's where we agree. We agree that the persecution took place in a different location. But he was sent, if he was a disciple of Gamaliel, Gamaliel was in Jerusalem. He had yeah, to have Paul, trained well, under hey, Paul, Paul never says that. Uh, Paul actually gives us his pedigree and he uh, omits any any famous pedigree like that. Uh, the Gamaliel thing is in Acts. I think Acts is making that up. We have no corroboration that he studied under Gamaliel uh, in Acts. But even if he did, that could have been decades before, right? So, so that doesn't really help us uh, with with anything here. Um, and I well, think my, you, you might want to change the subject. I, I just like a bit of advice. I think this is tangential to the debate that we brought here to do. Maybe, maybe it, you don't think it, it is. It is, but I, I, I think I think that. I, I mean, I I. We'll we'll move on from that. Uh, do you do you think the author of Luke and Acts are the same? I do. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot of material that you're saying is not independent in of itself. A lot of sourcing where he's claiming all these things, especially from the very beginning of his. The opening of Luke is very um, historical in its setting to give out information that he's saying he received whether you think luke wrote it or not how is that not i guess in your mind how is that not independent source based on question. all the content uh luke does a lot of things to dress up his gospel to make it look like a history um borrowing the preface style is an example trying to date events he only dates one event really but uh but but doing that is the kind of thing that makes it look like a history um but conspicuously absent from his preface, unlike other prefaces or other source statements in histories, is a statement of sources and why you should trust them. Uh, Arian, the historian of Alexander, for example, mentions who he's using, why he's using them, and, and why you should believe what they say. Um, Luke doesn't do that. He conspicuously never names what his sources are or says who they are. 
Uh, and we know his sources. They're either Mark and Matthew or Mark and Q, depending on which theory you believe in. Uh, I, I don't believe in Q, but... I don't uh, accept Q. Yeah, so he's using Mark and Matthew because he's quoting them verbatim. So, uh, so we know for a fact he's using them as a source. He's changing up their stories. So he changes up a lot of the nativity of Matthew because he doesn't like it. Uh, and there's been good scholarship on the specific rhetorical changes that Luke made. And you can see how they're actually based on Matthew. He's reversing a lot of the Matthean story. So a lot of this you can go into in the details of this. But Luke tries to make it look like a history, but he conspicuously omits the things that we actually find in real histories of the time. Um, and to give you an example, like Luke clearly uses Josephus's Jewish antiquities for a lot of his color material. A lot of his background material comes from there. He probably used a similar historian for the Aegean when he does a lot of the, gets details right about the Aegean, but they're details that have nothing to do with Christianity. They're incidental details of the color and the context, the historical fiction he's writing. We don't have any examples of his corroborating, of corroborating evidence of the Christian parts of all of this. But you look at how Africanus uses Thallus and Phlegon to two sources that don't mention Jesus and weaves them together and then puts Jesus in the story and creates a new story. Africanus does this in the third century. Luke Acts is doing the same thing. He takes all these stories of Josephus and then ties all these people into them. So like Gamaliel is a prominent figure. That's why Gamaliel gets mentioned in Acts because uh, the, you know, the author of Luke wants to tie all Christian history into this great uh, history so, of the world. So it, it's actually there's and I did my first doctorate on Luke and material um, in, in Luke and Acts. I would actually say if you're looking at who's following who and I don't have time to pull out all my documents, I think actually Matthew's writer was following Luke on many occasions. In fact, the genealogies are different. So I don't think they're copying each other. Matthew used a very Jewish section like 14, 14, 14, like he separated based on Jewish sectioning back into David, starting with David, middle David, Luke actually went a completely different direction. I think that they are very independent, even in their lines, because they did not well, even they, use the same format. They're very independent in ideology and plans, right? They don't agree with each other very much uh, on a lot of things. They, they want to tell a different story. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, obviously, that's a that's a kind of very minority position, uh, Matthew and priority, or at least... Matthew before Luke. Um, I, I would advise well, people I think, to look at Goodacre's arguments. He, he has detailed arguments as to why that doesn't work uh, logically. I, I think, I think, by the way, that I think Matthew, I think there was actually a Hebrew version of Matthew that was first. And, and, and most people think Matthew, Matthew in priority based on some of the church fathers' so you think, quotes. You but, think it's Hebrew, Matthew, Matthew, Luke, then Mark? No, I, I think there's a Hebrew Matthew that we know that we don't have anymore. And it uh -huh. was pretty much just an M source. It was Matthew's source. I don't think it was the full gospel. Okay. I think Mark was the first Greek gospel. I think everything started with Mark. Because Matthew um, quotes Mark I, verbatim. So Matthew's clearly so our yeah, Matthew, oh yeah, Matthew, our Matthew, Matthew cannot Mark. cannot have come from Hebrew. So it sounds like you're more like you're imagining a Hebrew Q. Um but except no, it's actually, not really. I, there's multiple places in Matthew where actually he does use Hebrew idioms that he had to translate into Greek. You can see numerous examples in Matthew taking Jewish philosophy, whereas Mark doesn't even deal with it because he's writing to a, a, a Gentile audience, probably in well, Rome. Mark, Mark throws in a lot of Aramaic and explains it to his audience. Uh, you have yeah, Luke, giving, Luke has tons of Septuagintalisms. So Luke is trying to emulate the style of the Septuagint. So a lot of yeah, the Aramaicisms in Luke are actually the result of him emulating the Septuagint. It's like someone, you know, emulating uh, the King James Bible and then claiming that there was a Hebrew source because uh, it sounds like the King James Bible. That, that's not well, uh, how that he, works. But with he, Matthew, I think the same thing's going on. Like Matthew's, Matthew has his own Hebrew knowledge 
Uh, I don't think he's using sources. I think he's putting his own spin on things and writing things his own way. Well, Luke was clearly using multiple influences. His opening line was taken strictly from the physician's manual back in the second century BC. I mean, he actually literally used the same line of opening to defend something as a, a physician would. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Right there in the first line. I mean, wor- word for word, minus his change of audience. So it has, it he has was some similarity to Josephus. Josephus has a similar uh, I would say it was, like the, the, well, the I would say it was actually, it, it, to me, the writer of Luke and, the, and Josephus were influenced by similar historical writings. I don't think either one of possible. them are I don't think either one of them were borrowing from each other. I actually mm. think they were. Yeah, I, uh, I disagree with that, but we don't need to go into that argument here. <laughs> that's fine. I think, uh, can I, we I'm sure about... you know the literature, you know, Mason and everybody who's written on this as to why they're the specific mistakes that Luke makes that can only be explained by his using Josephus, not the other way around. But for people who want to go into that, you know, you can you can you can research it yeah. later. It's it's, well, it's off topic, go... I think, for us today. Yeah, well, I told you I want to debate you on Luke, but we'll save it. All right, so. <laughs> Uh, Galatians one, going back to Galatians one, um, <clears throat> on the persons of, of interest, going back to what I was saying about James, for example, <clears throat> if, if Paul's just identifying a general person for the sake of protecting himself by not missing somebody, the guy is not identified at all where anybody could actually pinpoint, they can pinpoint Cephas and, and, and see if his claim is viable but if it's just some random joe or james oh, in this, so in this case, there's no obvious. credibility to that witness so it's obvious that the galatians already know who kephas is right and they already know who the pillars are um so the 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 concern that paul would have because this is what would happen is he would make a claim oh i only met kephas and he just did that and then kephas goes you know visits Galatia, and then they ask him, so did he only visit you? And he says, no, there was another guy there. And oh, and they, they were uproarious. But if, if Paul says, oh, and I met James, the, a brother of the Lord there, and then they would ask Kephas, is that true? Did he only meet this guy named James and you? And he's, he would say yes, and then Paul would be secure. So the reason, you know, Paul is trying to make very clear that he can't get caught in a trap like that. So that's why he has to name the guy, this other guy that he met. And he has to distinguish that he's not an apostle. That's why he uses this convoluted grammar I'm not talking about James the Apostle. I met this other James, but he was a brother of Christ, so I should mention it because I could have gotten gospel information from this guy. Um, But then in the next passage, he says, he lists the three names, and he says the ones called the pillars. So he's very carefully distinguishing them as a whole other subgroup that is clearly already known to the Galatians because he says, you know, they're called this. The Galatians already knew these people. In Galatians 1, for him to just list him, he would not have indicated, this would have been the only place and and I, I backtrack this through the rest of the narratives. This would be the only place where the name with that description, the brother of so-and-so, is a general term that leaves the audience in ambiguity because I'm, I'm not sure the what same phrase. Could, could you rephrase that? I'm not sure which like, passage so, you mean. So if, if, if it was just a guy named James... Paul in would have one. Left, in Galatians, one. In Galatians okay. one, right? Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, Gla- go, going back to Galatians one, mm-hmm. if it was just James, he would have mentioned James, a, a guy named James. But in the phrasing of this, the, the James being the 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 ton Adelphon, if you would, that phrasing in all the biblical narratives, whether you're looking at wh- whether you think they're authentic or not, Acts, Paul's other places, utilizing it with Josephus how they utilize those terms with all the commonality of names, 
those those designs were there to give more specifics, not general. This would be the only place that I can find Dr. Carrier. This that, is the only place actually, I can find. That would actually work against you um, if you're going to maintain that position. And here's why. We have Paul explicitly saying that all baptized Christians are brothers of the Lord. So if he's supposed to be so specific as to specify biological brother of the Lord, he would have to do that. He couldn't say brother of the Lord. Tom Adelphon, he's, he uses as clearly as, as fictive kinship identifier all throughout his epistles. Paul, Paul frequently says this. With a personal name? Uh, Who does he do that with with a personal name? Uh, I'd have to check. Exactly. He, he doesn't. But he talks uh, he about doesn't. the brethren. I'm, I'm going to have to check with that. He, he I, I'm pretty he sure. He calls them when I'm he addresses sure the have, church. He, pretty sure I have, I have counterexamples to that, but I, I have to pull out the book and pull he, the footnote. He, he um, calls the general church's brothers, but he never calls an identifier, not just brothers generally, but the brother of an individual. That is first oh, century writing well, uh, and second. It, in Greek, he's, he'll say like my brother, your brother, etc. cetera. Uh, it takes the place of the uh, definite article, right? But, um, but not in this case. This is a this is a descriptive identifier to a personal name. Right, we're, that's we're gonna have to, I'm gonna have to look that up because I I'm okay, pretty okay. sure that's not true. Uh, Paul uses Tana Delphon a lot uh, in a fictive way. Yeah. It does not it does not designate uh, uh, biological. It's not enough to designate biological uh, because Paul explicitly says there are cultic brothers of Jesus. Never says there are biological brothers of Jesus. If he meant biological brother of Jesus and needed to specify, he would have to have specified it. So the fact that he didn't, he just uses the brothers. And the only time he uses the full pleonasm is when he's contrasting the brothers with apostles, because this only happens twice, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and here in Galatians 1, uh, where he needs to make a distinction between apostolic Christians and Christians of lower rank. Um, otherwise, he just abbreviates. He doesn't use the pleonasm. He abbreviates it as just brothers. But you ask, what brothers of what? Why are they brothers? Uh, they are brothers of Jesus, as Paul explicitly says in Romans. Uh, so so it, we don't need to go into it today, but I, I will check and email you uh, my source list on the Greek and see. Yeah, I, 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 I and I, and let me, let me be clear. So you, you're not misunderstanding me either, because sure. I don't want you, I don't want to mislead anybody. The phrasing of Adelphon as a general group happens all the time. I'm not saying it doesn't. But when he attaches an individual personal name with the description of the brother, another example, like I said, Acts 12, James, the Tana Delphon of John was meant to identify. And, and this was true. I mean, think about the disciples of Jesus. He had two of everybody. I mean, he had Ju two Judases. So you have Judas Iscariot. It's usually a description. So Judas Iscariot, and then the, the gospel writers obviously bitter against him a little bit. Uh, add the phrase, the one who betrayed the Lord, just so you know, it's not the other Judas. And then they James was a problem, again, being the sixth most popular name in Palestine. Naturally, Jesus has two Jameses. So they have James and John, James, the brother of John, or John, the brother of James, or the sons of Zebedee, whatever line you want to put there to to distinguish between James the less and James the brother of John. Sure, sure. I mean, all that's true, except there's the exception for the brethren of Jesus, right? Because Paul, that's the one case where Paul says all baptized Christians are adopted sons of God and therefore the brethren of Jesus. So that that's a different case than all these others, because here we don't have an adopted cultic brother of uh, the Zebedees, right? We, that's not a, that doesn't exist. Uh, but the cultic brethren of, of Jesus does exist. Paul says so. So uh, so that's why that the analogies to all those other brothers are, are 
not applicable because it's yes, they're identifying brother of particular brother of like if he'd said brother of Kephos, James brother of Kephos, that would have been very clearly a reference to a biological brother of Kephos. Because uh, he wouldn't need to specify, because there's no such but, thing as a cultic brother of Kephos. But, but if you everybody that, knows that everybody, the Galatians all know about the cultic brother brothers of Jesus. So, so that's a different case where he would need to specify there, where he wouldn't in any other case. Well, like for sense? example, Paul, but but Paul does this. We're, we're like for, and he does it in the female forms too for sisterhoods. I mean, sure. if you go to Romans 16, for example, he mentions uh, this this deaconess, if you would, named Phoebe. He calls her his sister. He calls, I mean, just depending on your view of first Timothy and, and so forth, Timothy, yeah. his son, uh, Titus, his son, he does use this endearing family talk, but, but well, look only what he says. because only because they're all brothers of Jesus. Right. So they are all the brethren. They're all brothers of each other and they're all sisters. of each other. It's the same word, but they're all sisters right. and brothers of but, each other. But that, but that sisterhood is to him. Whereas in this case, it's to another individual. That's not him. So yeah, that's I, where like, for example, I don't think Paul made that distinction. I, I don't think well, when he, he says my brother, he means, you know, it would be just as if they were all biological brothers of Jesus. He would also say my brother. Right. Because uh, so, so is fictive kinship. Right, terminology there would be personal works, pronouns. Right. There would have been my point is like fictive, fictive kinship terminology works exactly the same way as biological. So. You can't make the distinctions that you're trying to do here. Well, the, the, the point I was making with that is in other places, say Romans 16, one with Phoebe, he doesn't call her a sister of the Lord. He just says, my sister, Correct. Phoebe. Yeah, that, he was does my that, point. All, that was my point. About this, the would be the only, this would be the only place where that descriptive is general, not specific to a name attached to a personal well, two. There's two. Uh, personal name. Well, okay. Attached to your name. I think what you mean is the full pleonasm, brother of the, the Lord. Pleonasm, that, and then that's not just like, that's what I'm saying. That's not Cause, just. Because you're right, that, that only appears twice in Paul and only once to assign to a specific person. That, specific that is name. true. Yeah. And if that's you're talking consistent about the whole phrase. Yeah, if you're talking about the whole phrase, I, well, I think we need to interpret an author by their own style, not by other authors' styles. So well, that, well, that's why I brought up Romans right. 16. So, if you look, he does this all the time with other names, and he never well, attached that. But he doesn't say other. brother of the oh, right. He doesn't say brother of the Lord. So, so the pleonasm he only uses when he's contrasting apostles with rank and file. He's not doing that with Priscilla. He's not. He doesn't need to con contrast her with an apostle. He's just saying my my sister. Uh, and through most of the letters, most of the time, Paul just abbreviates and just says my brothers. My sisters, right? General. Uh, he leaves right, it general. Right. But he, he means fictively, right? So, so th these are not biological connections. He's talking. Well, about. I'll give you an, another example, and I, I know you probably. I, I'm not sure if you accept Ephesians as Pauline, but let's just uh, well, use it for well, oh, Ephesians, purpose. right? I, I do not. It would not. It's not even. I mean, the reason we don't believe it's Ephesians, it's Paul, is because it's the wrong style. So uh, we can't interpret well, Paul's style with Ephesians, unfortunately. Well, I brought it up for particular, like again, another example that time for. He says, uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, using now whether you believe that was Paul or somebody impersonating sure. Paul, the style again demonstrates it's it, this Galatians one to my study, and I'm not perfect. And I admit that anybody can fact check me and I will gladly back out and say, hey, there was another spot I missed. This would be the only place where that type of setup takes place in all the Pauline writings, particularly sure, from the seven letters you would accept as Paul. I want to be sure I understand though, like what you mean. So it, before it sounded like you were saying, saying Tana Delphon by itself, Paul never no. does to anyone else. No, what, no, 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 no. What you mean is adding of the Lord. 
that adding that piece is the part that you're calling attention that, to. That consistency of title description that okay. goes on in that yeah, time I, of writing. I would agree that that is rare in Paul. In fact, he does it only twice. Uh, okay. And, and so the question is, why does he do it only twice? Um, and so we could get on a 50-50 argument where it could be he only does it because the only two times he does do it, it's when he's contracted. What's the other time you have in mind? First What's the other time you First Corinthians nine, he doesn't name anyone, but he he talks about uh, the apostles in distinction to the brethren of the Lord. brethren. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like generally, right. he does that all the time, but when it comes to condensing it to a single person, no, relation, no, okay, no, he doesn't do that all the time. Brethren of the Lord is a phrase that occurs only once in Paul. No, no, no. I mean brethren, like addressing a corporate. Yeah, group. I know, I know. It's I, I think you, I, I say one thing, and then you like uh, take it as a different premise and start from there. So I, I think we're creating confusion. So um, you're talking. Okay, <laughs> so let's back up. So let's back up. Yeah. So generally, we agree that brothers is used regularly for Paul to talk about the whole Christianhood and the of, singular. Uh, He'll say the brother, yeah. my brother, etc. My brother, so and so. Then. In 1 Corinthians, you're specifically talking about with the phrase kurios or kurion at the end, in the Lord, where he categorically places the Wait, whole group. Okay, now you've, you've lost me. The, in the Lord. Is that what you quoted from 1 Corinthians 9, or did I hear you wrong? No, no, no. Oh, no, it's brothers of the Lord. Of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, which verse are you in? Because I, 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 I don't remember first, specific names there. That's why I'm asking. Uh, no, it's not. That's that's why, I, that's why I think there's confusion here. I, I didn't mean to cite it as an example of there being a personal name in there. Uh, Kephas is there, but he doesn't. Uh, anyway, um, Kephas comes which up ver- later. Which verse is this? Oh, I see. In verse number five? You're talking about verse there number five? There we go. Five. Yes, sorry. Verse five. Rest of the d- disciples and the brothers of the Lord. Yeah. Ra- rather, yeah that's And that's a... Yeah, that's definitely that family feel. And that's why I've said numerous times, Adelphos could mean, it could mean Jewish brotherhood. Jews used it all the time in relation to their nationality. It could be a community of believers of like-mindedness. But at times it does have blood relation. And typically when you have sure. a personal yeah. name that needs clarification, we see Josephus did it. And I know you dispute a little bit of yeah. chapter 20 okay. about Christus. I think I understand your argument. Um, so, so let me make sure that you understand where I'm coming from on this. Is that yes, that's possible. The problem is that there's a huge monkey wrench thrown into this, which is that the okay. normal practice, the normal that's that's true. If if we didn't have a section where Paul says that we're all adopted, the baptized Christians are adopted by God and are all brothers of Jesus. If that passage didn't exist, you'd have a point. But because that passage does exist, now we have a problem. The exact same terminology and the exact same procedures that you're talking about will now apply to both groups. There won't be a distinction. So when you need to make a distinction, it would have to be explicit. So the, what we have in, in Galatians 1 is not explicit enough for your purposes. If Paul means to identify James as a biological and not a cultic brother, uh, which he would have to do because all the Galatians know about cultic brothers, and Paul's never mentions anywhere else they're being biological brothers, he would need to specifically say, like uh, brother of the Lord in the flesh or something like that. He, and the, he would only have to do that because of this weird cultic tradition within Christianity that they're all adopted by God and thus the sons of Jesus. It creates an exception to this particular case that doesn't apply to other cases like the brothers, the Zebedee brothers and things like that. Um, so those analogies don't carry over. Does that make sense? It does, but I, I think it actually leaves the audience confused as to who in the world they're supposed to be. I think it actually brings greater clarity by being overly specific 
which is my, my point of that was, is that's consistent with other writings. Well, that's whether, what he would say in the flesh, right? He would have added in the flesh to specify, but, oh, I mean the biological brother of Jesus. But we don't see that necessarily in other places like Acts yeah. 12, James, the brother of the Lord being killed. He didn't say the brother according to the flesh. It's assumed yeah. as much contextually. Adelphos is assumed by well, its context. Uh, no, actually, uh, it's very unclear what they mean in Acts. Whether if he you means, identify a name to a name, it's yeah, but typical. No, it's, it's not clear if he means a cultic brother of the Lord or an actual biological brother of the Lord, because uh, there are two Jameses in, uh, in that in chapter. Yeah, and to uh, distinguish no, two him, in Acts in one, there are two chapter. apostles. So I think this is the apostle we're talking about here. Right. I have to check right. that but again. If gotta, but if you go to chapter twelve, you have a James that's killed by Herod, and he clarifies let's, it's the, let's read it's it. the let's read it. It's the brother um, of John. Yes. See, okay, that that proves my point. So he's made very clear this is not the brother of the Lord. It's the brother of John. Now, there is no cultic brother of John, so there's no need to specify brother of John in the Lord or in the flesh. Right, so it's his his physical brother. Yeah, there's no need to do that here because there's no such category as fictive brothers here. But there is a category. Well, he does because there's another James coming. There's another James he mentions in the same section. He has to make... Okay, so... Acts 12, 2, it's James, the brother of John. So the author of that line does not have to say anymore because there, there is only one way that could mean. It means biological. There is no second thing that that could mean. Um, whereas for, for brothers of the Lord, it is confusing because there are two categories of brothers of the Lord. There are adopted brothers of the Lord, and then there are biological brothers of the Lord. Now, we don't find the biological one in Paul anywhere. We find the adopted one very explicitly in Paul. So Jesus is a different case where we have this whole fictive brotherhood that doesn't exist for the brotherhood of John. So James, the brother of John, you don't need to specify in the flesh, right? But for brotherhood, if it said the brother of the Lord, you would have to specify which kind of brother, adopted brother or literal, you know, literal brother, right? So, so that's why the analogy doesn't hold, carry over is what I'm saying. Is that, that I think it's consistent though. In, in my opinion, we, and we can move on. I know there's plenty of other subjects, yeah. but I think it's consistent in writing to do it the way it is both in Acts and Galatians and even in the way Josephus and others use it yeah. because, because of the commonality. Consistency is an evidence, right? So consistency gets you to 50-50 at best. It doesn't get you over so it doesn't does, well, doesn't no, resolve would, the question of, of which is meant by this passage. It's it's just saying okay. it, it could he could mean either thing, but we don't have any evidence as to which it is. Now I think the evidence weighs in favor of fictive because I think you would have to uh, specify it, in the flesh okay. here. All right, so we, I think we beat that dead horse. I think it's dead. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe, and I probably I hit it more times into, than though, you. Did. These are worth going into though, because uh, like there were several points there where we misunderstood each other. So it was worthwhile. It, it was worth for clarification. Getting on the same page. Yeah, figuring out what we are. Listen, so, I'm to, I'll admit I hit time. the horse. I'll admit I hit the horse more than you did. How about we leave it at that? Okay. <laughs> sure. Um, can where we talk we? about, let's talk about how much time do we got, uh, uh, James? Two and a half minutes left. Oh man. Really quickly on Tacitus, uh, you and I have corresponded in the past about this. So um, you think that Tacitus received his information from Pliny more so than, because did Tacitus not admit he had records that he had seen in Rome, that he was actually given access to court records in Rome? Not in this passage. Uh, and there wouldn't well, be, I mean, any, this wouldn't be in a record in Rome. 
there, there was that kind of bureaucracy didn't exist until Diocletian hundreds of years later. Um, there, there's no way hundreds of executions in Jerusalem are being recorded in the archives in Rome. And even if they were, wasn't there an no act way, of violence? Uh, not a real one. Uh, and uh, right. So, um, yeah. you know, but it was talked about when the acts of Pilate yeah, talked about see, Suetonius the, and the archives, the archives of Rome burned several times before Tacitus. So he's not likely to have access to that. Um, he, he would have had access to the acts of the Senate because that was published and disseminated to other libraries. So when Domitian replaced the books that were burned in the library in, in Rome uh, under his reign, uh, he was able, he would have been able to replace the Octus Sonata because um, there were copies to, to go get. Um, whereas the, whether well, there were Suetonius of, talked about him too. Suetonius said that during Caesar's time, they actually enacted this. Um, I don't know if you call it a modern day, what we call a newspaper or whatever you want to call yeah, it, there, but it's even Suetonius talked about that was the, issue. Yeah. The Acta Sinatus. Yeah. And local towns would have their own. Yeah. It's the Gazette. Um, it would, it would have, it would be full of stuff. So it'd be like the equivalent of a newspaper. Uh, but no, um, Tacitus doesn't say he got this information from there at all, uh, in any way. Um, and, and it's very unlikely that he would bother because as soon as he heard that story, that was too delicious for him to even bother checking. So he, he would be astonished that Christians were admitting to this. Uh, and so he would, he would just quote it. He's not going to spend hours digging through archives. If they even, but he was tracing it back to a man though. Like, cause they were trying to figure out where did this group blow up and roam from? And they're trying he, to trace it back to a name. He doesn't mention the name. Yeah, he doesn't mention doing any kind of tracing activity. He just says this is the origin of the name. Uh, right. In fact, he references the present person. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't tell us anything about where he's getting this information. Uh, I think the easiest and most obvious place he's getting it is Christians. Um, well, my uh, point is he's familiar with the with document up into oh, the sorry. closing. Okay. No worries at all. I'll give you a chance to, if you have any final thoughts from that dialogue, you guys have a chance to mention them in your closing. I'll, I'll let Dr. Carrier finish that one. I'll let, I'll let him finish out what he was saying. He was, I'll let you finish Dr. Carrier. I lost my track on that anyway. Um, You're talking about Tacitus receiving the information from yeah. more likely from the Christians discussions. Rather yeah. Than from, um, yeah. Cause we, we know, for example, Pliny, Pliny the younger, and I'm on my time now, right? We're doing it five minutes. We're going to jump right into the closing statement. That's right. And starting the timer right now. Yeah. When, when Pliny, when Pliny wants to know what Christians believed, he says he didn't know until he asked Christians. So he wasn't consulting any acts either uh, or any source material. He just asked Christians. Now we know Tacitus asked Pliny for information about his stuff. Um, and we know Pliny asked Christians and that's where Pliny learned stuff about the Christians. It's very unlikely that Tacitus would bother any, with any other source. Uh, and, and in any case, we have no evidence that he did, which is the key point. Uh, we can't turn speculations into facts, uh, so we can't use them as premises. Uh, it would be delightful if we could know where Tacitus got this information, but we're not told, uh, and there's no particular evidence that he got it from any kind of reliable source. So we can't use it. It's frustrating, but that's, that's how history works, especially ancient history. We're stymied like that a lot of times. Um, but that's just the state of the evidence. That's how it is. Uh, I'll just reiterate my, my main point. Um, when we're looking at someone who's as heavily mythologized as Jesus, uh, there are a lot of savior gods that were placed in history. Um, there are a lot of other kinds of hero figures placed in history. Aesop, you know, uh, poor lower class sages that did a lot of things similar to Jesus, including getting themselves killed for blasphemy unjustly uh, by, the, by the temple elite. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of these stories going around of these made up heroes uh, for these particular functions. It's, we know that's the case. And Jesus looks a lot like these guys. So, 
we would need to ask what evidence do we have that makes Jesus an exception? It makes him historical and them not, right? Uh, and then when we go looking, we don't find it. Uh, we should find more. I think we should find more evidence of Jesus than we do, but we don't. The first place you would go is people who were alive and write tons and tons about him who were alive at the time of him. Uh, Paul didn't meet him in life, uh, but he writes thousands and thousands of words about him. But all we get from Paul is references to Jesus only being known through scripture and revelation. No reference to any him handpicking disciples, people hanging out with him, him having adventures or particular deeds in life, particular teachings in life. Paul doesn't even mention parables, uh, for example. He doesn't mention him being a preacher. He doesn't mention him being an exorcist uh, or a miracle worker. Um, so none of that's in there. None of that's in Paul. Paul looks is weirdly silent about the historical Jesus in our sense. Uh, in his sense, the historical Jesus is this visionary being that he has by he knows by revelation. He has private conversations with. Uh, he, he talks about, he has conversations with Jesus up in heaven. They talk to each other. Uh, and this is how he says people get information from Jesus. So that's how it looks like when we look in the time of Jesus. Now, if we go an average lifetime later, suddenly these books appear. Now, these books don't appear in Palestine. They don't appear in, so far as we know, Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, you can speculate, but we don't have any evidence of that being the case. All we have are the Greek texts. And it looks like, you know, Mark came out of the Greek text. Matthew came along and embellished and altered it. Luke came along and embellished and altered it. John came along and did what they, people were usually taught to do, which is rewrote them all in his own words, but still using their material uh, and expanded and added and so on. And expanding and adding is also what people were taught in school to do. So so that's actually part of uh, what we know these guys had in their training able to write this, uh, this good, the Greek that they write, the sort of compositional Greek. <clears throat> and um, so, but there's no evidence that any of this has any sources other than themselves. Uh, it's right. So, so we, and, and they're fabulous stories. They're ridiculous stories. Even the stuff that isn't miraculous is, is often not believable. Uh, we didn't go into that this time. I've done it in other debates though. But uh, so these are highly mythologized, unbelievable stories in a foreign language, in a foreign land by unknown authors, never citing sources, for any of their material. So this is, in history, this is the worst source situation to be in. It's terrible. Uh, and so that's not good enough, right? So, because we have similar stories like these told about other non-existent heroes, savior heroes especially, but many other types of heroes. So um, so that that's not enough. We can't cite that. So we can't use that. So what do we do? Well, we've got historians that come decades and decades later, but there's so much later that the gospels are already in circulation. Christians are already quoting the gospels. The Gospels are already infecting their creeds. When you look at Paul, he talks about, he mentions the creed, different creeds, several times in Philippians, 1 Corinthians, and so on. But when we get to Ignatius, suddenly the creed has elaborately incorporated the name of Pilate, the name of Mary. All of these Gospel details are now in the creed. They're not in the creeds in Paul's day. And Ignatius is writing roughly around the same time as Tacitus, Suetonius, etc. So, so we know the Gospels have already infected Christian teaching. And they're most likely sources these guys would have about Christians are Christians through the legal process or just directly asking them. So, and, and we have no evidence of any other source that they were using. So we can't establish any of the historians as independent of the gospels. There's no independency that we can establish. There is no other evidence. Uh, and so that is a really terrible, terrible case for Jesus. Like the, the evidence looks bad is what I'm saying compared to other people um, of similar nature. Thank you very much for that closing, Dr. Carrier. We'll kick it over to Dr. Stephen Boyce for his closing as well before we jump right into the Q&A. So thanks so much. The floor is all yours. Great. Uh, thank you, James, for inviting me on to this. And uh, thank you, Dr. Carrier. I'm sure you had a thousand other things you could have done tonight. Uh, always have this. I haven't had a discussion with you I didn't enjoy. So uh, I hope it's mutual. 
uh, if I'm ever it in is. California. I, I echo that. Yeah, quite. I'll try to connect with you if I'm ever in California. And if I'm in California, probably somebody should call for help. I shouldn't be there. But um, uh, I do appreciate the time that uh, we've had. Uh, just to kind of rehash some of my points. And obviously, I, I don't know if anybody else knew this, but I don't think Dr. Carrier or myself believed that we were actually going to convince the other person of our arguments tonight. Uh, most uh, debates are for our audiences to listen to. And to kind of rehash my points uh, on my first premise, I still stand by the fact that I believe that Paul uh, was originated as a Pharisee of Pharisees from the area of, of Jerusalem, trained by Gamaliel, sent by the Sanhedrin as a person who would have known why the mission of killing Jesus was necessary, according to the law of Moses. The change in Paul was based on what happened to the man that died. Uh, I, I, I'm convinced based on not just the gospel testimonies, but particularly even his own, that there was something that took place in him on Damascus that changed him. And that was on the defense of what happened to the body. And he believed it resurrected from the dead. Uh, with the usage of terminology, I enjoyed our conversation today about James and Jude and these names about brothers. I'm uh, glad we were able to bring some clarity to each other to make sure we understood it. I still stand by the fact that because of the commonality of the usages of these names in Palestine, and by the way, most of these names to the audience, you may not know this, the reason a lot of these names popularized in the top 10 out of 100 were thanks to the, the Maccabean family. A lot of these names originated and got so popular because of the Maccabean periods during the Maccabean Wars. Judas, Maccabeus, Simeon, Simon, all of these names uh, came from pretty much family members of the Maccabean family at that time, which really grew in Palestine. And so as a result, we see in other places of the New Testament, as well as even Jesus himself needed the description, Jesus of Nazareth, because there were many Jesuses. There were many, or Hebrew name of Joshua, in the land of Palestine during the life ministry of Jesus. There were a lot of Saul's. Uh, it could be a, a reason the name change took place there for him is because of the popularity of Saul's name going to a more Greek format. And then Peter was Simon. Simon is the number one name. Uh, these names become confusing in literature. But if the audience is familiar with the, the apostles or the ministry of Jesus gang, if you would, when you start mentioning them and putting those same distinguishers that you see the gospel writers do for James, the, the brother of John, or James, the less, or Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord, versus the other Judas, as one of the gospel writers puts, Judas, not Iscariot. Just, just so you know, it's not that one. Um, they had to give clarifiers so that you as a reader would not be confused as to who was being talked about. I believe in Galatians 1, Paul was following that same pattern throughout to identify an individual specifically, not generally. And uh, I, I still believe that this would be an only exception with a personal name there rather than a group or a, a collected group here in this unique place. And then we see it consistently in other writings to identify by description. Um, and so I, I still hold to that position that this was a a way to bring clarity to similar names. Uh, as far as the ancient references that we talked about with James and, and through uh, Josephus, 
I believe that those sections were there to clarify not only James, but to clarify Jesus too. And apparently Josephus had some sort of record. I know there's dispute about the name being there, but it makes once again, that clarity and more sense to bring clarity to both the common name of Jesus and the common name of James. And again, as I stated in my presentation, the Gnostic writers did the same thing to try to gain credibility in their writings. Peter, the brother of Andrew, so that you would believe he is the one who was with Jesus or Didymus Thomas, rather than just generally Thomas, which is also a top 50 name. Didymus Thomas would have took readers to go, oh, that's talking about the guy that was with Jesus uh, because he was a twin. And that was a feature that described him. To me, that is a consistent avenue. As far as Hegesippus went in closing, I think Hegesippus is actually a little bit more important, though he may not have a perfect history. Eusebius validated it. And as I stated, Eusebius was a court historian who was under the watchful eye of not just Christianity, but Rome. And he had access to things that we just don't have. And we're thankful for what he did preserve. He was by no means perfect at any point. Was he a perfect historian? And he had opinions that he was pushed back on quite a bit theologically from others that came during his day and after. But again, I want to thank Dr. Carrier for this debate. Thank you, James, for having me on and inviting me to it. Uh, I trust it was informative for your audience and it gives Dr. Kara and I something to think about after we get off. Thank you very much for both of you. Pleasure is all mine. And thank you very much, folks, for your questions. We're going to jump into it and we're going to try to move fast so we can get every one of your questions in. This one from Constellation Pegasus says, originally no devil and fallen angels. Christianity invented that later. Why fight if Jesus existed or not if Christianity is proven to be false? I think this is for uh, okay. you, Dr. Boyce. Yeah, there, there's two things in there, and they're both wrong. But okay, Doctor Boyce, you handle that. <laughs> well, I mean, angels angels were taught very, very early on, and even in the intertestament period before the New Testament. I yeah. mean, you have the Book of Watchers. I mean, you've got yeah. stories of the fallen angels by names. I mean, first yeah. Enoch. The, the whole falling of Satan, the whole war in heaven, Satan is a fallen angel. All of that many, stuff pre predates Christianity. Many, 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 many years before. This there was a in. second part to that question. Oh, that's right. Um, they said, uh, so then. <clears throat> why why, why argue over historicity? Yeah. If Christianity is proven to be false. I mean, that, that is a different question um, that I do get asked a lot. Um, do you have a comment on that, boys? Well, I don't, I don't I don't see how the angels and demons part. I don't see the connection either. The Christianity yeah. part. Maybe I, maybe I'm thrown off by the first question. Well, the whole I don't, maybe the whole gospel doesn't make sense without that backstory, which I would agree with. Um, but that's where the backs. That's why it came out of that backstory. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, according to the gospels, angels appeared to Mary, gave her the news, appeared to Joseph. I mean, angels were very instrumental. And yeah. even after Jesus's temptation, angels comforted him on the side when he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So they're instrumental yeah. in the New Testament, but they didn't just show up in the New Testament. Yeah, really. I, I, to, to get away from that faux pas and just focus on the question, the second part of the question, I would say... The reason I think it's important is because it's history, and I think a lot of people are wrong about this, and we need to reform the way we talk about this in history. So I think if Christianity has a different origin story than is usually taught, uh, then that is important. I don't, I'm not teaching it or proposing it to defeat Christianity. In fact, I have an article on my blog. I very specifically tell people, do not use this as an argument against the truth of Christianity because it is a weaker argument 
than just confronting the resurrection on the presumption of historicity, right? You could just assume historicity and easily prove that the miracles aren't true uh, and easily prove that the theology isn't true. Um, so don't, you know, the only people I think who, who can have fruitful debate about this are the two, two groups of people. There's people who are already atheists who aren't committed to Jesus existing and scholars who have cultivated a certain scholarly objectivity and are willing to like entertain the possibility that certain people did or didn't exist. So you could have a debate over the existence of Homer. There, there actually is one. Um, it, it's mostly on the side of there wasn't a Homer, uh, but but it's discussed in the field and it's discussed because it's it's history. It's relevant to history and the people who study it. Uh, so it, that's why they do it. They don't do it to try and refute, you know, Homer worshippers or something like that. This one coming in from Constellation Pegasus says, Jews laugh at the idea of Paul. If he was who he said he was, then he wouldn't have been killing Christians in areas he had no authority to do so. Not sure who it's for. That's not I really think that's for Dr. Carrier. Yeah, it's not really true. Um, so before the Jewish war, uh, the Jews had established by treaty with Rome the right to govern their own people by their Jewish laws. And there were actually Jewish courts in multiple cities. So the diaspora, you actually could be subject to a Jewish court if you were Jewish. And by, but if you were a Roman citizen, you could appeal to Roman law and get out of that, right? You had to get out of jail free card. Uh, Acts depicts this with Paul, whether that's a true story or not, it, it is actually a thing that happened. Uh, that is actually how the law worked back then. Now, after the Jewish war, this was not the case. The treaty, treaty was destroyed and nullified by the war. But before the war, uh, there actually were Sanhedrin courts all over the place. You actually could be given writs of authority to go, but you would only go and be pursuing Jews, right? Now, that Which makes sense because Paul had not been converting Gentiles yet. The only Gentiles that converted to Judaism were converting to Judaism and constantly were, were voluntarily submitting themselves to Jewish law, even in diaspora towns. Uh, so, so they would be subject to Sanhedrin courts in those towns, uh, they, they would, uh, unless they had some sort of other citizenship that they could appeal to, to escape. You got it. And this one coming in from Do Appreciate It, S.J. Thomason says, how does Dr. Carrier explain Acts twenty three eleven, where Jesus stood next to and encouraged Paul? It's nice when the questions actually address the person they're asking it to. It actually <laughs> helps a little bit better. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, they said... Uh, all I can let's see. I'm in the same boat. They said, uh, "Can you explain Acts 23:11, where Jesus stood next to Paul and encouraged Paul?" I think they're saying, "Would you say that it was a hallucination or something different?" Or that's my oh, point. I see. I mean, it's fiction. Acts is fiction, um, and I have a lot of arguments for this, and I follow a lot of scholars who agree with me on it. Uh, in Chapter Nine of On the Historicity of Jesus. Um, so there, I don't think there's an event here to explain, but, uh, if there was a story that Paul was telling about which this is sort of an exaggerated version of which, yeah, it, it, this is a dream, right? This is a dream or hallucination. Paul talks, Paul has Jesus come and talk to him all the time. Uh, we have that in second uh, Corinthians 12. Uh, so this is dead Jesus, by the way, is talking to Paul and he had, Paul relates a whole two way conversation that he had with dead Jesus. Um, this is Paul himself doing this. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's obviously dreams or hallucinations. You got Can it, I, I clarify on that? Go ahead. Can I clarify on that? Yeah, yeah uh, please, please. Though I believe Paul had a physical Jesus he believed in, I don't think that passage is talking about a physical Jesus showing. I think it's the presence of Jesus. And it specifically says Lord there. So I, he believed that that spirit of presence was with him. I would actually say it's a spiritual presence, not Which, a physical bodily appearance, if you would. I'm not looking if, at if I'm interpreting it as a pastor. Yeah, I'm interpreting I mean, that as 
That's entirely plausible uh, in context in, in Jewish, the way Jewish texts would write. Um, I, I'm not looking at the Greek of that passage, so I can't say for sure, but, but uh, appearances of the presence of the Lord, that, that is a thing in Judaism. Yes. Um, oh, absolutely. And so, I think that's so, what's happening. So a- angel yeah. of the presence was a thing. It was often Michael, sometimes it was Gabriel, um, or the Metatron. There's different kinds of roles that angels would be assigned. So angel of the presence, uh, so, so the you know, presence of the Lord could literally just mean an angel of the Lord. Uh, that would be completely congruent with the way people talked back then. This one coming in from Ye of Little Faith says, Dr. Carrier routinely, routinely accuses historicists of lying. He recently wrote that none have told the truth about his work. And asked, why, Dr. Carrier, do you engage in this way? Uh, Only when people lie about my work. So, for example, Dr. Boyce has done none of this. Uh, Dr. Boyce has approached this completely honestly. um, And if he doesn't know something I've written, he's doesn't pretend to know, right? So, uh, so, but, but what I run into with what they're talking about there, and I have lists of examples. I don't just accuse people of lying, by the way. I, I extensively prove it with evidence. Uh, so if you, so if I've ever called anyone a liar, go to my blog, look them up and look at the evidence and then decide, uh, and you should be outraged, frankly, at the way they completely lie about what's in my book or what's not in my book or what I have argued or what I haven't argued. They do outright lie. Now, these are certain people that do this. Uh, and when they do it, I call them out. I actually prove the evidence and preside it. And in any ordinary sane, rational society, that would shame them. Um, but instead, people just aren't interested in checking the facts to see if that's the case. So, uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're concerned about me calling anyone a liar, uh, go look at the evidence. I will have presented it in detail. Uh, and then you can make your own judgment call as to whether uh, the person in question lied or not. This one coming in from David P. Neff says, this is the best debate I've seen on this subject. Kudos to both of you for a respectful dialogue. I have much respect for both of you. And want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description so you can hear more from them by clicking on those links. Pineapple Platymus says, why do either of you need evidence of good ideas? Sometimes I think they're trolling. Uh, let's see this one coming. Well, did the name not give it away? I, I could name? do some. Yeah, I could, I could do some philosophy on that though, uh, taking it more seriously than it probably is intended. Um, ideas are like 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 um, uh, precepts or something, right? Or or you know, ideas of how to conduct your life or things like that. Um, good ideas, you know, sell themselves is the whole idea. But um, we're not talking about. Well, the historicity of Jesus is a complex question because it deals with tons of complex sources, a very complex historical context, um, all other languages. Uh, so, so there's nothing, it's not like, it, there's nothing going to be self-evident uh, about either the historicity of Jesus or the non-historicity of Jesus. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. Coming in from Dharma Defender says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions 515, or 515 witnesses to Jesus it's interesting that none of those all-important eyewitnesses' testimonies were preserved. I think that's for you, Dr. Boyce. Well, I think they were preserved by Paul here because this was a common thing. In fact, he challenged the readers of Corinthians, stating that of those 500, many of them were still alive up to that point. So his statement was actually a challenge. He wasn't just making a claim. He was making a claim that he felt like they could even go and 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 challenge his claim with. He's saying, hey, 500 plus people saw this too. A lot of them are still alive. Go ask them. This is a defense. And like I said, as I mentioned before, Jerome translated a pick, a depiction there in the Hebrew Matthew of a resurrection appearance to James, which is what paint, uh, which is what Paul says here too. 
So people obviously at that time were familiar with the eyewitnesses and did have conversations with the eyewitnesses. And Paul was totally open to letting them be challenged to which of those were still alive by the time he was writing this. So I, I don't see that as uh, necessarily, it doesn't need to be going that direction. I think it's actually clear what he's doing here. He's making a defense and opening the opportunity to be challenged. I, I think I can redirect the question because I think that misses the point of what they're asking. Um, so I, I deal with this a lot in a different way, which is my question as a historian is, what did they see? Right. So, so when Paul says you know, he appeared to Kephas, et cetera, he appeared to the brethren and so on. I want to know what he means. Right. But we don't, he doesn't say, uh, we, we have an account from him about his vision and he doesn't seem to imply that it's the same as everyone else's. So you can make that inference, but we don't actually have a story from any of those 500 saying, this is what I saw. Hi, I'm Jacob. This is what I saw. Um, and that's, that's, limiting to us as historians. It means we cannot import assumptions into this. So we cannot assume that uh, he's talking about Jesus showing up from the grave and hanging out for a month, having dinner parties, like Acts uh, depicts. Um, but uh, but then you have Acts 2, where the public history of the church starts, and you have all the brethren having an appearance, uh, which is the tongues of fire, they have the Holy Spirit arrives, well, maybe that's the remnant of the original appearance to 500. Maybe it was more like that. It was more like a Fatima ecstatic sort of vague uh, appearance. It wasn't like a guy walking around eating dinner with you. Um, so, so the question is, that's why it matters that we don't, we don't have the testimony of those 500 people is because we don't know what they, that te those testimonies were. We have these other dudes that we don't even know who they are writing in a different language in a different land and making up stories about it but we don't get to hear from the people themselves. And I, I think that is a serious problem, both religiously as well as historically um, for that. And that's, that's why it matters that we don't have the testimonies of those 500. You got it, Dan. Thank you very much for this question. Coming in from Doc Pleroma Not says, if the Christian Messiah was a quote-unquote stumbling block for Jews and foolishness for Gentiles, how would euphemerism work given 1 Corinthians one twenty three was, quote, the plan, unquote. It's a very confused question. What, were they asking me this question? It sounds like they're asking I me think this question. So. I think they're asking you. Yeah. I think that's I, a question to you. So I think there's a euhemerism was the word they're going for there. Thank you. Um, there's a disconnect. I'm not sure what they mean about 1 Corinthians. Um, and then the stumbling block is a whole separate passage. Um, I So there's a lot one could go on in this, but I'll just say, like, if I'm right— Let's just assume for the moment that, that the, my model of the origins of Christianity is correct. Um, when Paul says that the Messiah or the, the crucifixion is a stumbling block for the Jews, what he means is that these Christians are going around talking about a cosmic crucifixion that has occurred that they only know about from Scripture and Revelation. And the Jews are like, that's ridiculous. Like, I wasn't there. Like, I didn't see any of this. What are you talking about? Uh, and so that's why. And then the, the Greeks, of course, ask for or, uh, the Greeks, the same thing. It's foolishness to the Greeks. Same thing, because the Greeks are rationalists. They disavow, uh, at least Greek elites uh, or rationalists, they disavow belief in things learned by revelation. So going around preaching things by revelation, the Greeks, that's, you're just a bunch of fools. Uh, and whereas the Jews, they're like, they believe in revelation. Um, but the stumbling block is they don't understand like, well, what are you exactly are you teaching now? And why, well, how can you teach it with this authority? Like we, we didn't meet this guy. We don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and so for them, it's distrust in the the origin and truth of the revelation, whereas for the Greeks, 
is disbelief in revelation altogether. And I think that's what's going on. Uh, and I think that's going on even if Jesus existed historically. I think that's what Paul's talking about. So the passage isn't I, terribly usable for historicity. I, I think what he's doing there with the Jews is, is basically saying that th there's no doctrine that was more offensive to them, that their Messiah that would come from their descendancy would be crucified on a Roman cross as a public embarrassment. Like there is there, no great there's actually, there's actually no evidence for that. That is a common assumption in the field. Um, but actually the Talmud has exactly the opposite view. Uh, the Talmud teaches that the Messiah ben Joseph would be killed uh, and that he would be resurrected by the final Messiah who would come immediately after the Messiah ben David. Uh, but it's the method of crucifixion, I think, is the point. Not so much that he would die. No, but the I, I would, no not at all. There's the, the martyrs of, you know, the Maccabean martyrs are all crucified, and yet their blood atones for Israel. It's, actually, it's part of the explicit doctrine of the martyrdom doctrine. Um, well, if it was so, martyrdom, so, so it was the, the method criminal. Of, yeah, 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 that's the point. Is like so. So if you go around saying that the the martyrs were crucified and and therefore they're holy, that wasn't offensive to Jews. They totally got it, right? So so you could sell the same point about Jesus. He's just another martyr who was unjustly killed, uh, and that his death proves the you know the the beauty and truth of Judaism, etc. So that that really can't be the obstacle, and we don't really have any evidence of Jews balking at the manner of death as the issue. There's no sources that that suggest that that's a, a would have been a barrier to them in and of itself. This one coming in from do appreciate your question and Ron remind you guys, folks, our guests are linked in the description. We do really do appreciate them. And we also appreciate your questions that they're very, I appreciate they're of a higher rigor tonight. They're especially Good. high. This one coming in from Doc Pleromonot says, shockingly, only Axe mentions Paul learning under Gamaliel. And then in parentheses, he says, a conciliatory peacemaker. But if true, persecuting Christians is difficult to square given Hillel tradition known for tolerance. I am skeptical. Well, Paul said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He also was apparently traditionally by family in that line of Pharisaical teachings. So he would have been whether, I mean, again, I, I accept acts as accurate to him being under Gamaliel. Either way, to be a Pharisee, you had to be under rabbi teachings, instruction, Torah, memorization, all of those things. It doesn't limit his credibility as a Pharisee or a representative. The fact that he was sent to Damascus means he was of value to the council itself of the Sanhedrin. So he obviously had great favor with somebody. You don't get commissioned by the Sanhedrin. As I, Dr. Carrier said earlier, Sanhedrin was not just like all Jews that were Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were in the Sanhedrin. In fact, some were Sadducees. It was a select few. So to even be commissioned by them, you won favor with somebody. If it's not Gamaliel, who else was it? I don't know, but it was obviously somebody of great importance, and he had worked his way up, if you would, through the ranks. Yeah, Th thanks for adding that. I'd forgotten about that earlier. That we should have made that point to people as well. That the, there are there are Sadducees and Pharisees in the Sanhedrins, and they disagree with each other. There are probably other sectarians too, but uh, I think the Essenes tended to stay away from those political organizations. But yeah. um, but there were probably there were many there were dozens of sects, so there could have been other sectarians, and and the Pharisees were split between two sects. The questioner mentioned Hillel, but there were also the Shamites who are super conservative. Shammai. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, so and and they're super conservative. Even even the you know even the the Hillelite rabbis are like whoa these guys they're really conservative. Um, so it depends on who has what power when right and who can influence what. Uh, but there is a good question as to. I think the questioner is doubting whether Paul persecuted Christians. It sounded like that's – I say that because I've heard other people say this. I don't understand why they would doubt this. Uh, Paul himself mentions it multiple times as a, actually yeah. a particular 
particular stumbling block for him, like getting accepted. Uh, so, so that, and, and, but he, he uses it as a classical minister narrative, right? It's like, Oh, I was this unrepentant sinner, this horrible person. And then I found Christ and became wonderful and, and so on. So it, it's almost the same thing you see with a lot of ministries. Um, so there's nothing unusual about that, that happening. Uh, but Paul does mention it. Now, one thing Paul doesn't mention is why. Uh, there's no mention of what authority he was acting under, why he was persecuting them, or what he did. Like, what were the penalties? What laws was he enforcing? Uh, we, we don't know. Like, Paul never says, or at least if he did say, we don't get to read that letter. Uh, and, and even Acts he said, ancestral, he said it was ancestral traditions and uh, the law well, of Moses. That, right. That's vague, right? What law? Right. What were they breaking? 600, there's, over break? 600, there's over 600 in the law. Yeah, I know. Law. Even so, uh, it is. There's no obvious violation of the law in in the Christian teaching at that time. So, so the, the, you know, it, we don't know, and we would love to know what it was that Paul thought was so offensive that you would go hunting these guys. Um, but we know those things happened. There, there were, you know, sectarian persecution. Uh, we know there are accounts of uh, pursuing sorcerers, for example. The Talmud seems to tell stories of the Christians being persecuted as sorcerers. Um, that's probably made up, but but it's an example of the th- kind of thing happening. Uh, the question is, what what were the actual laws that, that they were violating, and why were they so serious that there would be a guy who would go out of his way to go town to town looking for them? Uh, we don't actually know, and even Acts is vague on on the actual legal. I would say they argued over the person. They were all disagreeing about the person of who Jesus was. Who did he claim to be? Was There's he no law against his- that? There's no law against that. That's the thing. Well, it's heresy. Oh, it's heresy. No, there, a, a there's no such thing as heresy false. either. Heresy isn't a law. Well, a, false, no. a false prophet um, was. So yeah, they put there, prophets to, to give you an example. Heresy is different from violating the law. Um, Sadducees were heretics to the Pharisees. There was nothing illegal, and no one was persecuting Sadducees. Uh, and in fact, you see in the Talmud, like they were heretics because they denied the resurrection. And the Pharisees' punishment for that was, well, God just won't resurrect them then. Nanny nana. That that's all they did, right? So there's no like legal persecution of them. Let, let me reuse a word. Let me reuse a word. Blasphemy and yeah. blasphemy. Violation. Blasphemy is a specific law, but the yeah. Christians weren't breaking it because blasphemy means uttering the name of God in vain, like uh, uttering it aloud. Um, there's a very specific law at that time. That's a very specific act. Christians weren't doing well, that. A false, so prophet, been, a false prophet was put to death, and that's that was their association was well, with a false then, prophet. Right, so that's a hypothesis, but is yeah, that? Well, that's, that's, that's right. not an acts. No, no one is executed in acts for being a false prophet. Uh, no one, Paul isn't, doesn't mention, ex, you know, persecuting Well, Stephen claims they murdered the Messiah. The next one pretty Even quick. Yeah, but but that would be, the false prophet would be Jesus, right? He's already dead. So you wouldn't go right. persecuting people talking about a false prophet. They would have to themselves be the false prophet to end up on the dock, right? So, that, so that, anyway, so we don't know. We don't actually know why Paul is persecuting Christians. It had to be something. This one from Don Fullman says, For Dr. Carrier, what other main figures in the Bible do you think didn't exist other than Jesus? Paul existed, James existed, but Jesus didn't? I am assuming they mean the New Testament, because a lot of people in the Old Testament didn't exist. Um, I would say, I don't think Elijah and... Um, uh, Elisha it were real. I think they're made up heroes. Uh, I don't believe Moses existed. I don't think any of the patriarchs are historical. Um, in fact, like about half of the Old Testament are fictional characters. Um, but um, when you get to the New Testament, um, I think they're like about half the apostles might be invented. So like Thomas Didymus, I think, is a fabrication because he doesn't exist in any of the early lists of apostles. And Thomas Didymus is a fake name. Uh, it just means twin twin. 
So it's, it's not a name. Uh, so it's twin in Greek and twin in, in uh, Aramaic. So, uh, so the, I think Thomas is made up. I think Lazarus is made up. And in fact, we see him get made up. Luke makes him up in a parable. Has Jesus literally speak of Lazarus as a fictional character? The name is Eliezer. It's a common Jewish name. Uh, but the figure of Lazarus gets turned into a real person in John, and I think that's made up. I don't think there. Were, I don't think the Lazarus in John was a real person. Uh, and there are probably other apostles that weren't real. The ones we can confirm are real are the ones that Paul mentions because he mentions them, right? Uh, I say apostles, not disciples. So like Kephas, Peter. Uh, James and John, uh, Paul actually mentions those guys. And so, and, and he mentions them as apostles and as ranking apostles. The pillars are actually the top three. Uh, and, and in the gospels, they, they maintain that order that James, John, and Kephas are the top three. So, uh, so I think, I think that's the tie-in, but I, I'm less certain about the other apostles. I think some of those lists of names are made up. Some of those people are probably made up. You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from Amir Ashafra says to Dr. Carrier, Jesus was a historical person, in parentheses, and they say Romans 1, verse 3, and Galatians 1, verse 18. Okay. Sorry. Uh, Let's see. I don't recognize. It sounds like stuff we already covered in the debate. So <laughs> it's uh, the way they put it is it reminds me of deductive logic, but it's not. I the way that they put the question is I've never seen it. So uh, Amir, okay. if you could put it in the live chat in another way for me to understand. I'm but this one coming in from he's talking about him being a descendant. He's talking about him being a descendant of David. Uh, I'm assuming that's where he's going with it. Yeah, uh, the word descendant is not in Romans one, however. This one coming in from Constellation Pegasus says, what writings exist that show Jews were ordering the killing of this new sect called Christians? I would like to see that. Like to see documents about this? Is that what they're saying? I think that's what they're saying. I mean, I mean, this gets to a point that I think I think Dr. Boyce and I didn't get into because I think we both agree uh, with our knowledge of history. Um, like 99.999% of all documentation won't have survived. Uh, and in fact, we know like the origins of Christianity, there were, t- there would have been tons of letters in, in Paul's day. Paul's not the only one writing letters and we don't even have all his letters. He even references other letters that we don't have, but there've been tons of other missionaries writing letters. So, and that's just the Christians who have, you know, interest in preserving their own history. Even they didn't preserve um, almost all of their stuff. Uh, and so if you get to other groups, like we have almost nothing from Judaism about Christians, gosh, I think until the Talmud. I don't know if we have any actual Jewish text uh, about that. Uh, and But it's not because the, the Christians didn't exist. It's because Jew, Jewish texts didn't survive. Uh, so, so there would have been tons of documentation, but there's no necessary expectation that it would survive. Now, that, there are certain versions of the historicity of Jesus, the theory, where it would entail, if that version were true, that would entail the survival of certain documents. But all that would mean is that that's argued against that particular version of historicity. So like the Matthew says Jesus was famous all across Syria. That can't be true. Uh, if that were true, we'd have a lot more documentation survival. But if Jesus was just pretty much a minor guru and Christianity was a very small fringe sect, there were like dozens of Jewish sects, and we have almost no documentation on any of them. And if Christianity was like the smallest one, we'd, we have no reason to expect any survival of documentation. So that doesn't really argue that, and that Christians didn't exist, or it doesn't argue that Jesus didn't exist either. The, the silence of the record is a weak argument for that reason. I don't know if Dr. Boyce has anything to add to that. I, I agree. And I mean, Paul said he did it. So, I mean, there's right. an early uh, first century right there. And <laughs> yeah. and it is a statement uh, against no, interest. I, I think. And there's no doubt that Tacitus and others recognized they were at least concerned with 
these meetings, these secret meetings that were happening around the time of Domitian. So, but they were, they were having church, but they were worried about conspiracy. Well, and I hadn't thought of this before. That's a good point. Um, to make a distinction, Tacitus is, deal, is talking about Roman law, not Jewish law. Correct. And the, the, the law that the Christians were violating under Rome was illegal assembly. So assemblies. assemblies. Yeah, we, yeah, it's illegal assembly. So we, we take the, the amendments uh, for granted. The right to assembly is explicitly in the United States Constitution. That is actually the first time in history, I think, where that right to assemble was actually established so that you couldn't outlaw it. Most of the time, assemblies were illegal without the permission of the government. You had to have a license to assemble. So severe was this law under Rome that um, the Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, had been so rebellious that the emperor was not even granting licenses to assemble to build fire departments. Uh, so, so this is the thing that Pliny the Younger is really concerned about. Is like, can't you let us form fire departments? We need fire brigades so that we can fight fires in the cities. And this is, nope, they become political. They're not allowed. So they wouldn't even give licenses for fire stations. They would in other provinces, but in Asia Minor, they weren't. But this is the illegal assembly is what, and when we have the letter of Pliny the Younger when he's persecuting Christians himself, it's very explicit that it's the illegal assembly law that he's enforcing there. He, he says they were not guilty of anything else. Uh, so, uh, so that's they the thing. feared conspiracy, though they they feared overthrow conspiracies in meetings. Yeah, but that, that never comes up in actual trial documents. So, like that's why it doesn't come up in Pliny the Younger um, or or Trajan. Trajan's own letter on the Christians doesn't mention any such concern. Uh, in fact, it's clear that they had no such concern because Trajan says leave them alone. Um, but it, it was the the daunting the government was a thing. But Paul is actually you mentioned it as a Greek name. It's actually a Latin name. Paul is Roman. Which may Paulos in Greek. Paulos in Greek. I guess it's his his comes, name in Greek. Paulos. That comes from, from the Latin. Latin word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so that that's why probably people, that's why people probably thought he was a Roman citizen. Now, one could think that maybe Paul was operating as a Roman operator, like enforcing illegal assembly laws. But he he doesn't seem to mean that either, because he he seems when he's talking about his own trials and stuff, he's only interacting with the Jews. He's not being attacked by the Romans. He's as a turncoat against the Romans or anything like that. And he never mentions working for the Romans in this either. So I, I think he's, it's gotta be Jewish law that he's enforcing. It seems pretty clear. That's the, the mindset that he was in uh, and it required that revelation. Like you said, he, I think he did either genuinely or really, he had a genuine turn of heart for sure, whether that was based on genuine experience or not uh, either way. But uh, so anyway, uh, the Romans had different interests in the Jews. So, so there, but still that's, uh, there are different, uh, different laws we're applying to who is persecuting whom. This one coming in from Amir Eshafra. Thanks for letting me know. They said they are putting it in probability terms and now I actually understand it. Okay. So basically they said <laughs> the probability that Jesus existed given Romans one verse three and Galatians verses chapter one, verse 18 is greater than the probability that he doesn't exist given those same verses. And then I'll, I'll read the, read you the verses. They say it's first uh, Romans one, three says regarding his son who yeah. as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. And then Galatians one eighteen says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. Give you a chance so that. we already covered this in the debate. Um, the word descendant is not in there. Uh, that's a translation license. Someone took license with the words. Uh, it actually says made of the seed of David. Uh, and I do think Paul means literally made of the seed of David. I think God formed a mortal body of Jesus out of the seed of David. Uh, and there's precedent and basis for that. I, I cite a bunch of it, not just in my book, but uh, more recently in Jesus from Outer Space. I cite some more examples of, of attestation of this kind of thing. 
Um, so it's vague, point being. It's, it's ambiguous as to whether he means an earthly person or a celestial mortal, uh, someone who was temporarily mortal uh, in a celestial realm. So, so that's vague, unfortunately, as to historicity. That's why it doesn't give you the, the, the greater than operator. Uh, at best, it gives you an equal. Um, and then the same thing with Galatians. We, we went all, we covered Galatians heavily in, in our debate. So you can just go back. And, and when you said uh, the descendancy, you're talking about the word spermatos there. What, what do you mean it's not there? I, I'm, the, the seed that's, or it often translates seed. It's semen, literally. Um, yeah, yeah, but usually it, it has that descendancy implication. For right, me. but the word is not there. It's very important because a lot of people think the word matters, uh, and but that word's not there. So if you're to translate it correctly, it just means made out of the seed of David. Now, that's a weird phrase and, uh, and ambiguous as to what it means. Uh, what does that mean? Does it mean descent or does it not mean descent? That would depend on your interpretation of the text. Uh, so we can't use the text to defend the interpretation. This one coming in from, do appreciate your question. This one from Brandon Hansen says, question for Dr. Carrier. Why do some atheists confuse faith and blind faith? Isn't faith reasoned from evidence and blind faith is based on nothing? Do you agree? I'm not sure the context of how that's relevant to our debate today. Um, I, I'm a stickler about semantics. Uh, I am a big proponent of ordinary language philosophy. Uh, so the word faith is multivalent, like most words. Uh, so it depends on the context of what you mean. So faith can just mean confidence, which can be won by evidence, or someone could use faith specifically to mean confidence without evidence. Like it, it does actually have that meaning. Uh, so, so it depends on the context of who's using the word for what, when. Um, so I, I don't see the question being useful. You got it. And Don Fullman says, Dr. Boyce, is there more evidence for the historicity of Jesus than most any historical figure of the time? Well, certainly in the first century, um, you know, when it comes to Pontius Pilate or it comes to, say, say Caiaphas, the high priest that's mentioned in the Gospels or Annas, the high priest. There are traditions that seem to later come in about these high priests or about, I mean, even even Tacitus, we just saw mentioned Pilate. But when it comes to the amount of evidence for a historical figure at that time, I think we have more evidence for a person like Jesus than we do just about anybody uh, in that companionship of that timeline. <clears throat> that, that's not true at all. Uh, Pilate, we have his autograph signature on a stone. Um, we don't have that for Jesus. Uh, we have a contemporary, a detailed contemporary account by Philo of Alexandria, who was an ambassador to Rome uh, about these issues. So like he, he actually was first, not firsthand, but he was actually there in that region at the time and actually understood all the story of what was going on with, with Pilate. So we have a much better account from a much more reliable source, a nameable, identifiable contemporary source. But what um, Pilate did, there's no information outside of his signature. I mean, there's there's not a ton have, of information. Yeah, we have there. a lot. Fi Philo, this, writes, Philo writes a lot, and Josephus has but, a huge, huge name. But, but this goes just, back to accepting the gospel narratives as independent sources in the first century, and that's yeah, I but, know. But with Josephus is not writing a mythology, right? So Josephus has, has a, a source-cited history and he's actually from the region of the time. Uh, so, so when Josephus gives detailed stories about Pilate, we have nothing like that for Jesus, like nothing, uh, not even close. And Philo writes a great deal more about uh, Pontius Pilate than, than anybody else writes about Jesus, uh, other than the Gospels, of course. But that's, that's the particular problem. The Gospels are mythologies. They're, they're, they're not and history. Paul. 
this one? Well, and that's but that's what we were debating is I don't think Paul ever gives us details about a historical like earthly walking Jesus. Um, he doesn't t- give us a narrative about Jesus. Nothing like we have for Pontius Pilate, for example. I can give you a quick um, so. quick response, uh, Doctor Boyce, since it was, the question was originally for you. If you want, otherwise we can jump to the next question. No, that's that. that uh, we're, it's just it all comes down to how you accept the gospel narratives and, yeah. and Paul in, in your perspective. It, it comes down to that based on how you weigh the evidence. This one, yeah, that's, from? that's one way to put it. The Mythic Life says, Hebrews 13, 8, quote, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, unquote. Does this description fit a historical or mythical character best? Well, I would say both, but uh, let Dr. Boyce answer that. I mean, the, the point of that is that Jesus, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about his eternality. Um, whereas this was a great debate in the early church. I mean, for example, uh, many believed at a later time that Jesus began his origin, whereas the writer of, say, the Gospel of John defended the origin being before time, uh, that he was there with God and all things were made by him and for him. Then this Gnostic group came in. There, This was a debate in the early church, theologically. Well, that's, that's actually in Paul. So Paul has Philippians, the, the pre, pre-existence of Christ. He mentions— he yeah. Right. He mentioned, and in, well, he he had the opportunity to be equal to God and chose not to be. Uh, that's actually kind of a, a very similar reference to the uh, what's called uh, Jewish emanation theory. So the idea that what's in John is right out of Judaism that the Logos was unified with God and then emanated from God and became a separate entity. The first archangel, Philo, talks about this: the archangel of archangels, who's the Logos of God. Um, th- so this this is, and and even John one is past tense. Jesus was God. Then he became the Logos, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's Jewish, totally Jewish. There's nothing actually weird about it. Uh, it's more in line with what Paul teaches in Philippians, where Jesus exists before. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8 that Jesus is the agent of creation, which is the same thing as the angel of archangels or the angel of angels that Philo talks about. The Logos is also the, God's agent of creation. And so there's a lot of other parallels between this angel and Jesus uh, in Paul, just, just from Paul straight alone. Um but that I don't use that as an argument that Jesus was mythical. And here's why: is because that is equally likely on both theories. Uh, it is equally likely that if there was a historical Jesus, just as Bart Ehrman has said in his book, "How Jesus Became God," that very early on Christians came to believe, like right out of the gate, practically after his death, that Jesus must have been the incarnate angel of archangels. So they believed in his preexistence, probably not during his ministry. We can't really know because we don't really have eyewitness documents from that period. Um, but certainly almost immediately after, we see this in, in the creeds that Paul's talking about, they believe that he he was the incarnation of this angel. And one can believe that about a historical person. We have examples of gurus in India, for example, who claim to be, you know, the long, the, the avatars of whatever and so on. So there's, there's a lot of people who claim to be the incarnation of something or other that, that goes back to time immemorial who are real people. And I, I think that that's completely explicable and would totally make sense in that time. Bart Ehrman's book goes into why it made sense in that time. He talks about a lot of the contextual documents and stuff that show that this, this was in line with Jewish thinking at the time. It wasn't that weird. Um, or Jesus was, all, was, was a celestial figure and, and was always so, but became mortal in some other, you know, like a, a lower celestial space. Both theories explain that evidence equally well. So I don't think that evidence argues for historicity or against it. Agreed. I actually agree with that. I think that I, I think all that speaking of is his eternality, and anybody from either side can take that to mean. Yeah, it's a question want. of are they attributing that to a historical person or not, and they easily could. Right. Be. Right. You got it. And Jeff, 
jpacksicken 7 says, Paul never said he ate in each chapter. He wrote, ergo, Paul must have never eaten. I think it was some sort of, uh, I don't know what particular uh, part of the debate it's so referring to. So this is interesting. So this is Bayesian logic here. This is the mistake a lot of people make. Uh, when you look at uh, the likelihood, which is the probability of E, evidence, uh, given, um, or probability of the, yeah, given the hypothesis. Every single time, uh, sometimes mathematicians, because they assume you already know all the math, they drop B, just background knowledge. But the term B should be in every one of those. So it's normally P, E, given H and B, and B. This is very important. So the probability of E on H depends on background knowledge. So, for example, uh, is it expected based on the way people wrote back then, based on human nature, based on how letters were formed, etc.? Is it expected that someone would mention that they ate in every chapter of a letter they wrote? The answer is no. Uh, so the hypothesis does not predict that Paul would do that. Consequently, there's nothing uh, unexpected about it. So the probabilities don't go the way that the questioner was trying to get it to go. I, I don't. I don't think that's a good argument at all. By the way, um, and Paul did say he would not eat certain things in Romans 14 if it offended his brother. <laughs> right. I, there, there is a chapter. All right. Or I, I, I don't. I don't suggest <laughs> that argument. Sorry. No, I, I wouldn't. I would never attribute it to you either. This one coming in from Dustin Ellerby says. Does the God of Israel, in parentheses Trinity, have a brother? I don't know who that's questioned to, but I mean, no. Could, could you uh, read the question again? I didn't understand it. You bet they said, does the God of Israel, in parentheses Trinity, have a brother? I see. No, there's no teaching of that anywhere by the prophets yeah. or Torah. Um, it, it would also no depend on which era you're talking about. Like if you go way back to the Abrahamic era where we're actually not in monotheism yet or henotheism. Um, I, I'm not, I don't understand the question, so I, I really can't answer it. You got it. And thanks very much for this question. Nicodemus, the Damon says, after reading Philo, I agree with Dr. Carrier. Bro, or was it bow and arrow says, why Jesus come from three of 14 generations of ancestors in parentheses 314. I don't understand that question either. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't get it. Neither. Is he talking about math? Is he talking about Matthew specifically with the numbers of Matthew, or am I misunderstanding this? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't mention it. They they just said why Jesus? Why does Jesus come from three of fourteen generations of ancestors in parentheses three hundred and fourteen? Three of fourteens is Matthew's genealogy, so it can't be Luke. He's got to be talking about Matthew, but that's that's Jewish writing that goes back to numerics, very important numbers and sections. Yeah, yeah. Three fourteen. So that that's why again, I think Matthew originated as a Jewish account. I think it was a Hebrew account because he used a lot of Hebrew numerics and the fourteen. I, I will agree. I'll agree with that part that that Jew, Matthew is clearly Jewish. He is a Jewish Christian. Um, and definitely imports a lot of Jewish ideas like that. So that's totally expected. That sort of, it's not literally gematria, but it's, it's, it's that kind of thinking. You got it. This one coming in from Kwani Upstate says, if everything, G if everything people claim to have witnessed regarding Jesus occurred, does it prove he was everything he was said to be, i.e. the son of an all-powerful God? Who, who is, is that to me? They don't, uh, I, I would definitely, I'd mention it uh, if, let's see, I, I think it's maybe for both of you. I, I, they never put anything. I guess read it Can again. you read it? Can you read it again? 
He yeah. said, uh, and that's, that's a good point. Folks, if you can do me a favor, if you can address it, even if you think it's obvious for who it is for, it oftentimes isn't for me and oftentimes for the guests neither. So they say, if, if everything- it's almost midnight. Don't make me think too hard. Okay? We've got- <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Up there it is. Yeah. They say, if everything people claim to have witnessed regarding Jesus occurred, does it prove he was everything he was said to be? I, I see. see the son of an all powerful God. I'd say that's for you, Dr. Trump. Everybody well, knows my answer to that one. I, I would say regardless of regardless of which way you go in this, for me as a Christian, there is a faith element. You're not getting out of this without a, an element of faith. The the the, the because it, you if you are not the eyewitness, but you choose to believe the evidence of cooperation of the eyewitnesses, you're, you're not just believing an event by eyesight. You're, you're believing it by groups of bringing evidence of a case. So you're putting your faith in something evidential. So I do think there's a level of faith there. So does it prove everything? Uh, No, because you can have two people and Jesus did this. If you look at the gospels, he performed certain miracles in front of two crowds and certain crowds came up with denial of what he did. And then the others believed what he did. So even when Jesus had scenarios like that happening in his ministry, there was two opinions about him. He proved, he tried to prove himself as the prophet of Moses. He said, Moses testifies against you because he spoke of me. Jesus did all kinds of things to, to demonstrate his Messiahship and some believed him, some didn't. So does it absolutely prove everything? No, because people in his day said it didn't prove anything and they saw him actually do things. So eyewitness accounts are important, but you still have to have some level of faith, even with eyewitness accounts, in my opinion. You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from James W says, good job debaters. And Dr. Carrier really enjoyed it. Amy Newman and I are hosting an after show link in description. Tell us why you think Jesus didn't exist and that is indeed true. That link is in the description along with our guests. And then said, thank you, James. My pleasure. And this one coming in from Finding Truth says, does Carrier actually believe this? How does he define? They're giving you the heat, Dr. Carrier. Dr. Carrier, they say, how does he define evidence? Did Julius Caesar exist? What is that jug, let's see, jug slash container? I have articles on both those things. You'll be delighted. Uh, so go to my website, uh, richardcarrier.info. Um, in fact, uh, let me quickly, I, so I have an article on Julius Caesar. Um, did Julius Caesar exist? How do we know this? Uh, I would recommend that you start, however, with my article on Hannibal. Uh, so you can type in Hannibal cause I, I think there's only one article, but about the historicity of Hannibal read that because I go into the methodology of what, how we do this. I have a whole chapter on this in Jesus from outer space as well, if you want to do it, but I, including Caesar, there's a section on Caesar in there. Uh, but from Hannibal, you can find my article on Spartacus and from Spartacus, the opening paragraph links to all my other articles, one of which is on Caesar. And so you can uh, find my article on that there. As to how do I define evidence? I have a whole article on that as well, a Bayesian definition of evidence. Um, so you can probably blog or search my blog for Bayesian definition of evidence, maybe, or try some different phrases and stuff. You'll find my article on how you define evidence uh, using Bayesian logic. Gotcha. This one coming in from Do Appreciate It. Alexander Wright says, this might have already been mentioned. I'm coming in late, but what do you think all the witnesses who saw Jesus actually saw or who did they see? I think it's for you, Dr. Carrier. Uh, okay, so I have, I have another article. You can check it out um, on the on the 500. So use the number 500. Uh, so uh, and then he appeared to 500. 
Uh, so you can you can search my blog for that, and I have a whole article on it. Um, I'll take that as asking what my opinion is, not necessarily what I think I can prove, because I think in reality we don't know. So the end the end of the day, as a historian, we don't know. We can talk about hypotheses, we can order those hypotheses and and rank them uh, in terms of probability, uh, but we don't we don't have an account from anyone, and we don't have any evidence to pertain to to really say for sure that we know, like we, we various things could have happened. Um, I, but I suspect that the appearance to the brethren, the, and Paul is very explicit that there's only one appearance of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 that is all at once. Uh, he doesn't say that he appeared to the 12 all at once. He just says to the brethren all at once. So there's only one group experience in that list, and it's to all the brethren. And I think he said all the brethren originally. I think Pente- I think he said all the brethren on Pentecost. And that because it's, the Greek is very similar, I think there's been a corruption. But whether that's the case or not, I think Acts two is a <laughs> embellishment, kind of like a mythologization of the event Paul is talking about. So I think it was something like that. It was an ecstasy similar to the Shakers uh, would have, or the Seventh Day Adventists, or the Vo- the Vodun rituals, where masses of people have like personal experiences, like lights in the sky or uh, feeling a presence. And they all interpret this as them all having a visitation uh, of, of the deity or spirit or angel or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's what actually happened. I think it was an ecstatic event. Everybody had a personal hallucinatory experience. It was a simple experience. It wasn't an actual Jesus figure with beard and everything. Uh, and that they interpreted as a celestial Jesus, a heavenly Jesus appearing to them and confirming things to them, um, whether verbally or only conceptually. We don't know, but uh, that's what I think happened, uh, and it would be congruent with what we scientifically know of how uh, religious ecstasies and revelations occur throughout world religions in history. You got it, Dan. Thank you very much for this question. Amir Ashafra, appreciate it, says, why is Jesus being manufactured out of David's sperm more likely than Jesus being a descendant of David biologically from natural birth? The latter is more parsimonious, more parsimonious and least ad hoc. Yeah, uh, except it requires a historical man, right? Uh, so I think you have your order of causation backwards. So let, let, let's look at the scenario. If Jesus didn't exist, then they could not use that argument, right? If Jesus did not exist, there's only one way they could get the Nathan prophecy to be true, which is to make it literally true, to make it exactly what it, the passage says. It says literally the Messiah will be made of the sperm of David's belly, not, not a descendant. No, literally, because it was about Solomon. Nathan's prophecy was originally about Solomon. It was, so it really was. It meant directly from David, like no no intervening steps, just David, then Solomon. Uh, so if, you, if there's no historical Jesus and you have to believe in a Messiah that has undergone his incarnation and death to, to reverse the sins of Satan, you know, the destruction of Satan of the lower world and so on, if, you, if you're going to sell this to yourself even, much less to other people, you have to sell it as congruent with a Nathan philosophy. So you, you, there's only one way to do that, which is God took semen from the belly of David and used it, stored it, and used it to make the body of Jesus uh, for that very purpose so that scripture would be fulfilled. The word of Nathan is literally true in that case. And we have many examples of weird prophecy interpretations exactly like this. Uh, not exactly like this, but a lot like this in its weirdness. Um, and we have a lot of examples uh, of evidence of sperm banking like this. There was an angel, for example, called the Angel of Night that used to collect semen, deliver it to God, and then ask God if this semen would become a villain or a hero, and God would say whatever, and then the angel would go back and reimplant it. Um, so so th- this kind of semen manipulation, uh, cosmic semen manipulation, was a going belief at the time. Uh, so, and we have a similar example for Zoroastrianism, 
where the semen of Zoroaster was stored in a lake for a thousand years and then impregnated a woman later. In that case, it was an impregnation of a woman, but it has its idea of the, the, the supernatural preservation of the seed to affect a goal that the god had later on. But the reason is, is that when you when the prophecy says this has to happen, so the only way you could have a messiah that didn't historically exist is if you came up with some way to make the Nathan prophecy true, and there's really only one way to do it. This one comes well, I, I was like, if I can add in there really quickly, the 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 writers of Qumran about second century, first second century BC were actually using that Davidic prophecy, anticipating what a Messiah would look like if he came on the scene. They understood the prophecy of Second Samuel, referring back to that Davidic covenant, the king that will reign forever, an eternal kingdom. They obviously didn't believe it happened in David's lifetime, and they were still right. having this expectancy. Yeah, yeah. By then, no one, no one was interpreting the prophecy literally anymore. You couldn't, right? Uh, they they but, expected it to come yeah. under David's bloodline. But you could go back to preserving it literally, preserving the word of God to be literally true uh, on the cosmic model. So, so there's actually that's actually an argument for it. Uh, but the okay. point point in terms of Bayesian probability is that they had to do this. The probability that they would do it is 100%. So uh, that's another example of background knowledge changing the predicted probability. So even on mythicism, it 100% predicts that they're going to come up with some sort of way to make the Nathan prophecy true. Um, so so consequently, that doesn't, that doesn't help us uh, change the probability of historicity. This one coming in from Constellation Pegasus says, I've learned a lot tonight. I was under the I was under the impression from others that Paul persecuting Christians was false and didn't happen. This is a thing huh. going around. Uh, so I, I've run into more and more people making this assertion. I, I don't know where it comes from or, or why. I don't understand what the motivation is. <laughs> like, how does this help the cause of atheism or anything? I, I don't I don't know. It's strange. Um, there's no reason to believe that. Um, I, I don't know why people are. Same Thanks. And good day to you, sir, says Richard. Dr. Carrier, I've heard you say Bayesian reasoning was used to crack the Enigma code in World War II. Sorry for being slightly off topic, but was curious. Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not as up on the Enigma code history. Um, but it has been used to do a lot of cool shit. Uh, so um, Barch McGrain has a book called The Theorem That Would Not Die. Uh, and it is a great history of Bayes' theorem, and, and it will cover that story if it's if that's a thing. So if you're interested, that that'll be the place to go. You got I'm it. sure Wikipedia covers it too. What I'm thinking about living in the 21st century now. Thank you so much, folks, for all of your questions. We got to let these guys go. It's getting late, but want to say huge thank you, Dr. Carrier and Dr. Boyce. It was a great one. We really do appreciate you guys hanging out with us. It was a fantastic debate, and thanks for being with us tonight. Right on. It was awesome. Thanks, guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.